Hello and welcome to the Weird Geeks Horror Channel and our Hellraiser Retrospective Podcast, where every Friday we'll be covering a new installment in the classic horror franchise. Warning, this podcast contains strong language and spoilers throughout. Go to WeirdGeeks.com to check out our other podcast series, social medias, Twitch streams, contact details, and news on our very own feature films, albums, and shorts that are currently in production for our publisher, We Are Tessellate. Weird Geeks is not affiliated with any of the rights holders of the films referenced, and no infringement is intended. Geeks! Geeks! Hello and welcome back to the Weird Geeks Horror Channel where every single Friday we take you through another chapter in a horror retrospective franchise. We've just finished up last week with Child's Play with myself, Alexander Chard, and Alison Holland, and we are back now to start a new journey. I'm your host, Al White, and joining me for all 10 Hellraiser films is Justin Macaroni Mariconda. Hi. <laughs> and Katie Watson. Hello. We're like the OG team. Yeah, we are the original team. So for people who are new, head over to weirdgeeks.com, weirdgeeks.com, and you can mail us straight through there and go to our social medias. And you can have access to all our previous podcasts. We've done Friday 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Danny Boyle, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Child's Play. And now we're about to struggle, struggle <laughs> throughout <laughs> the Hellraiser franchise. Well, I'd say that was a Freudian slip, but I think it's just possibly the truth. Oh. We'll see. But yeah, we're the original team. We started the horror channel last year with Friday the 13th. Didn't know what we're doing. We managed to fight our way through. And hopefully, we're a little bit more together now. So, for people who don't know the way we do it, is these podcasts are pretty long. We're going to be doing a podcast on every single film every Friday. And then at the end of it all, we do a wrap-up where we will sort of recap on everything, throw in new facts. We will do a wrap on stuff. It's a literal wrap. Talk about other, you know, merchandise, video games, comic books, other novels, and all that stuff. And we'll put all the films in order as well as picking like favorite kills, favorite leads, and all that stuff at the end. Podcast by podcast, we're just going to be ripping apart each film, <laughs> scene by scene. So if you haven't seen these in a while, we encourage you to watch the films with us, because it's always kind of fun. Uh, but if you've seen them before and you don't remember, we're going to be you know going through them scene by scene. So Was that pun intended about good. ripping the film apart? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. There'll be plenty I of those it. coming over All the next All puns are weeks. intended. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the disclaimer. There should be a narrator. All puns are intended. Thank you for watching Geeks Podcast. Well, I mean, not watching, but listening. You can watch. You can just look at a picture of us while you listen to this. I guess you are watching because when you hear the voices, you start to watch in your mind. In your mind's eye. In your mind's eye. Welcome to the uh, Hellraiser Philosophical uh, Podcast. It's very meta, this podcast already. Yeah. So the film is Hellraiser. It was released in 1987. It's a British film. It came out actually on the 11th of September, 1987 in UK, 18th of September in 1987 in the US of A. Wow. I didn't even know it was a British film. Really didn't. Did well, really I mean, not? That's why I thought it was weird that there was like British people and American people. I'm like, man, this is weird. Well, There's we a reason for that. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely gonna get to that. 
Interesting. Directed by Clive Barker, written by Clive Barker, starring Sean Chapman as Frank, Claire Higgins as Julia, Andrew Robinson as Larry, Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty Cotton, Frank Baker as Derelict, and Oliver Smith also as Frank, but we'll get to that as well. Music by Christopher Young. It cost, well, originally it was going to cost $900,000. It ended up costing $1 million, and it grossed $14.5 million just at the box office. Uh, obviously made, this is the 80s, so we're talking about Lots more money when you get to the VHSs and the Betamaxes. And I thought you were going to say $14 billion. $14 billion, the biggest <laughs> movie of all time. Yeah, I thought for some weird reason. I was like, where is this going? <laughs> so, okay, so how we do these, we like to look at the year first before we get into everything else. Uh, but at the beginning of a franchise... I like to know where everyone's coming at in it. So if you're a listener, you know who you might be identifying with. We tend to like to split these podcasts up into the fan, who may not be a fan, but at least knows, you know, has seen them all before, knows enough about it. Someone who's in the middle, who's maybe got a little bit of knowledge, and there's someone who's brand new. I I guess I'm the fan, I suppose. <laughs> I've definitely seen them all before. I'm a huge fan of certain elements of them. And I used to be kind of obsessed with the character Pinhead, for sure. But what I like or don't like about the films, we'll get into... What about you guys? Uh, Justin, have you seen any of these films before? What's your knowledge of Hellraiser? I saw, I don't know which one. I saw maybe like two when I was younger, so it was terrifying me. So I'm here, you know, as a veteran of the spooky movies. I got a little yep. Jason and vroomity vroom vroom. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty experienced, I suppose. That's Leatherface for anyone who doesn't know the language of the chainsaw. Yeah. He doesn't speak in words. He just speaks in, you know, rooms, rooms, rooms. <laughs> uh, but you're so basically like you think you've seen one at some point. You're not sure which one, but you're basically new to this whole thing. But you, you know of Pinhead, yeah. surely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What is what do you think is the pop cultural significance of Pinhead now? Like, do you think do people still know him if you just say Pinhead to people? I feel like he's n- not as, you know, famous as the other slasher dudes. He's more of like, oh, if you like, oh, you're into you're into horror films. Well, are you into like this dark gothy type of? Yeah, it's like its own sub genre. I would say for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I, yeah. We'll get to some of the legacy of it. I do remember very explicitly in the '90s there was this weird fact that in China, the biggest poster that was sold throughout the '90s in China was with Madonna. And the second biggest poster sold in China was of Pinhead. <laughs> Dude. What? Was- Third biggest was a Pinhead Madonna melded <laughs> <Madonna>. together. <laughs> Whoa. China's biggest icons are Madonna and Pinhead. Good That's to know. pretty great. You're either Katie a Watson. Pinhead person or a Madonna person. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be both. Yeah. People in dormitories are just fighting over it. I don't know. Madonna Ooh. wears a lot of leather. So, yeah, I mean, they probably true. would get it's along. a leather face. <laughs> the third Freak poster was a leathersmith <laughs> tanner or whatever they're called right uh don't use skyrim words <laughs> uh katie watson what where are you with hellraiser what's the deal i have never ever seen any of the hellraisers up till watching this one but then last week you had suggested i'm a big reader and i ended up just scanning through and reading the novella which actually it says a novel on the book but it's mm. i think 170 pages that's long enough to be a novel but it's big type very yeah, big it's, it's it's a very quick read i think i got through it in about an hour and a half so i read the the hellbound heart which is what hellraiser is based on before watching the film 
And so this was me cold coming into it. However, to go against what Justin just said, I could have told you who Pinhead was without ever having seen any of these films. So right. I don't I don't know why that is, but that's just the case for me. I knew of those films. I'd had no idea what they were actually about other than some iconic lines and Pinhead himself. Yeah, I I'm really coming into it cold. I do have an issue for the most part with like late 80s, early 90s horror films because <laughs> because, yeah. because to me they they're like they're they're right on the cusp of being really well done and so there's some that i struggle with that i'm like man if they would have made this now this movie would have been insane but with what they're given they're really great for their time but it also kind of is heartbreaking because they're just not quite where they could be now yeah right so. right well i mean there's a lot of great 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 Horror movies from the eighties. So you got the thing. You got Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't mean to generalize. Like this was no, no, just one for me. But you're you're on the cusp. Of, again, don't reveal. Don't reveal your feelings. Just on the. Bus. No, I know. But like, I even some the of the cusp. Friday the Thirteenth when we did those. I was like, mm. yeah, it was okay. It's this just is a like, tricky period. Yeah, it's a rickety time to have made films, but in that well, vein, it's very admirable that people were able to pull off what they were able to do. Well, that's yeah. exactly the why we're looking at. Yeah, we like to on these podcasts. Yeah, look at the year. So that's a good bridge to take us into that because that gives us a little bit of landscape of where we're at. So, Katie, if you yes. want to start by just giving us the box office of 1987 from number 20 all the way up to number one so we can see what was happening. And this is my favorite bit of every single episode <laughs> we do in these retrospectives because I get to very weird. get transported back in time to what weird films people were watching. All right. So coming in at number 20, am I doing the total gross for the theaters? No, I just say the... Just, just doing the, the titles? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Eddie Murphy Raw is coming in at number 20. What the fuck is that? I have no idea. Is that... I never, I Paramount There was a, there was a film called Eddie Murphy Raw? Yeah. It's through Paramount. And is that like a stand-up thing? It's possible. I think he was... That went his, to cinemas? That's what it says. Eddie Total Murphy was big. Theaters. Yeah, he's no, a I huge I can't dude. be. It must have been... Or maybe it was. Fucking hell. All right. Yeah. That was a different that was a different era when stand up went to cinema. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, <laughs> it was uh recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. The film features actor, you know, Eddie Murphy performing a skating comedy routine. Wow. There All you right. Go. Eddie's Fair uncle, enough. Samuel Jackson, and other family members are lamped into sketch segments. Yeah, and that's his uncle? I guess. I, I don't know. I'm I'm guessing maybe it was like Played and uh, Samuel Jackson plays his uncle, right? Okay, I was gonna say yeah, I don't. They don't like <laughs> it. I don't think that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's not because there's other actors. It was like a skit. Thing I see. Okay. 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 Yeah. Number nineteen is The Living Daylights. Oh, that was a James Bond Timothy Dalton movie. Right, sure. I think that was the first James Bond film I saw. Actually, was Living Daylights. And so I had this weird, I was the controversial boy who thought Timothy Dalton was the best James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> You're always stirring that pot. But wasn't he? Maybe. Yeah, maybe he was. We'll have to wait and see when we get to the James Bond horror retrospective. <laughs> oh, st- wait, it's a horror? <laughs> James Bond horror. Well, it could be. Uh, number 18 was Broadcast News. Sounds mm. pretty lame. It's through Fox, so I think it was literally just that. Sounds pretty Just lame. news. <laughs> That's not um, a real film. Enjoy yes. our real news. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Number 17 was Outrageous Fortune. What are these movies? I, I don't mean, know. I was, I, I was seven, but I don't remember. After any this, I started to recognize them, but those I didn't okay. know. 16 is Robocop. Yeah. Whoa. 
Paul yeah. Verhoeven. That's yeah. a, I mean, that's really telling of the time because that's all, yeah, very violent, very sexual comedy mixed with, yeah, political kind of insight of the time. Right. It's a cool movie. It's a good movie. I've never seen Robocop. Well, you should. <laughs> 15 is La Bamba. Ooh. Ooh. La Bamba. That, that was the, yeah, La Bamba. That was the one that the song was around, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I used to love this. You had little, uh, what's his name? Was it Ralph Macchio? Or was it someone else in this? No, it wasn't Ralph. Uh, it wasn't him. <laughs> I used to like this film. I used to do jazz dancing when I was a kid, and I used to dance to the yeah, you did. La Bamba. Wait, what? Quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's supposed to be the secret life of Al White. No one knows about that. No. no. Listen now to the podcast do. to learn the secrets Just like of Al. School. He does. He kind of dollops them in throughout i've noticed when your imdb is up i'm gonna put that in there you should i don't have a wikipedia page Justin. if you could make me a wikipedia page and that's all it says (laughs) (laughs) nothing else i've done in my life loves jazz jazz schools loves jazz dancing i'm a jazz jazz dancer dancer as a child (laughs) uh 14 is dragnet great film okay never seen it 13 throw mama from the train Oh man, I remember this movie. Yeah, what? I used to watch it a lot. This is a bad movie, but yeah, great title. Twelve is a little-known film called Predator. Oh, is that higher than Robocop? Yeah, it is. What else are you? Eleven is Predator. Dirty Dancing. Hang on, hang on, hang on, now, Watson. Why? I'm very excited about Predator. <laughs> Why? Predator is one that we're actually hoping we might do at some point in the future because there's technically. Uh, three films right now and then the new one coming right. and that'll make it four and our rule with this podcast is you have to have four films or above for us to do it otherwise is that including alien versus predator oh interesting well then because you could throw that yes. in because you yeah. got predator predator to predators which is right. the one with adrian brody and then you got alien versus predator alien versus predator requiem and now this new one uh which yeah. i'm really excited about it's a shane black one which looks yeah. like it's gonna be awesome well yeah i think you should because alien versus predators are great yeah well they are yeah, well. <laughs> great film. You you may be the only person in the world who thinks they're great. <laughs> I love when like the two big baddies that are seemingly unkillable are like have to go against each other, and then you're like, no, what? me too. It's like mind blowing. Me, me so too. Me too. I I enjoy the fun of it. I don't know if you yeah. can say they're great films, but yeah, we'll find out when mm. we get to the predator. Well, I agree to disagree there, Al. <laughs> uh, so are we skipping Dirty Dancing since I already said it? <laughs> No, That's, I didn't hear. Sorry, Dirty oh, Dancing. 11 is Dirty Dancing. Above Predator, by the way. Quite right. Quite right. It's a great film. It's amazing. Uh, 10 is The Witches of Eastwick. Uh, mm. you re- is this the one you rewatched recently? No. That was uh, Hocus Pocus. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit different. <laughs> different witches. Yeah, different yeah. witches. All the same to me. <laughs> uh, number nine is Lethal Weapon. Oh, yeah. Shane Black. Speaking of Shane Black, yeah, this is uh, yeah his big debut. Really, he had just acted in Predator, actually, but wrote, wrote this one. Uh, eight cool. is Stakeout. I don't know oh, that one. No, oh, is that one Bruce Willis? I think sounds like Maybe a Bruce Willis. Um, number seven is The Secret of My Success, which I know the title of this, but I cannot place. I don't know that one. That one. Not a real movie. We've decided. Number six, The Untouchables. Oh, come on. So good. One of the greatest movies ever made. So one of the soundtracks good. ever made. And proof of Kevin Costner's greatness. <laughs> Lots of people don't like the man, but come on. Those people are just, wrong. Most people are indeed wrong. People are just yeah. mad because he's untouchable. It's true. 
And that's all they wanted to do was touch him. Yep. Cool. And number five, we have Moonstruck. Which that one's Bruce Willis, isn't it? No. <laughs> He's got to be here somewhere. It's Nicholas Cage. Is this is this about uh, chocolate? Nicholas Cage. Because there's what a, is wrong with you there's guys? There's a chocolate company in Portland called Moonstruck, and I like to believe that this is the movie about that ch- chocolate it company. Is. It, it so is good. not. It's a it biopic about starring that. Nicholas Cage. Yeah, that's two against it two against not. one. So Nicky Cage. Not politics works. It's like chocolate, but the better. But story. you guys don't even know who the lead actress in this movie is. Renee Zellweger. Stupid predator, but you don't know anything about Cher. Hey, she doesn't even need oh. a last name. Oh, I'm not, I'm not watching any Cher. Movies. Yeah, I'm not watching a movie oh, where there's the a singer and not an actress in it. You guys are the worst. <laughs> they just found out that she's going to be the lead in the new Mamma Mia remake. Ooh, oh, Jesus Christ. Why I won't watch it. I only well, watched one, one of the moms. And it had Dominic Cooper in it. And Kevin Klein. No, what was it? Is it Kevin Klein? What was the guy's no, name? It's Colin. It's um, Chris, Chris Klein. Not. Chris, no, Klein? Chris Klein. What? Um, fucking, oh. oh, Jesus Christ. Are you talking about that audition tape? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's like, <laughs> you guys you guys know who you should really get here? Mandy Moore. Man, what a great voice. She She's a really nice she girl. voice of an angel. <laughs> yeah. Oh the only God. good thing to come out of Mamma Mia is his audition tape. I do yeah. agree. It's and not Dominic my Cooper. Musical, Dominic Cooper was in Cher, it. Have some respect for Cher. She's a legacy. How dare you? Yeah. Number yeah. four. Good morning, Vietnam. Great film. Yeah, amazing uh, movie. One of Ron Williams' greatest. Very, sure. very good. Number three, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, Eddie Murphy in the top 20 twice. Twice. Once uh, just for being him. <laughs> number two, Fatal Attraction. Seriously Yeah, this is a good movie. Yeah. There's a lot of lessons learned from this film, I think. It was kind of the yeah. pre, pre-Catfish film. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and number one, one of my favorites, Three Men and a Baby. Whoa, Three, that was a number one. Movie number one. Wow. Very good. Supernatural film, actually. Kind of surprising. All right, well, that's the landscape of general movies. Justin, yes. can you read us out some of the horror movies that came out in 1997 so we can know what we're dealing with? Because we are, for people who don't know, from 1980 to about 1985, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of slasher films came out. It was the slasher boom. We're just just getting past that now. So the franchises are still going, I presume. And then we're starting to move into really what they called it. It's the dead zone of horror, which is as it moved into the early 90s, uh, when not much great was happening. So I'm interested, Justin. Are you? Because it's about to be I, uh, crazy. I am. Tell All me. right. Horror films of 1987. Bad Taste. That was Peter Jackson's first or second film before he moved from Australia. Yeah, schlocky. Mm. I, I never really liked it, to be honest, but, but people love it. Did it Did it leave something in your mouth? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Did it leave a bad mm-hmm. taste? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> glad did, to have you guys back. Justin, don't spell it out. <laughs> I, just, I just, you know, for the audience. Gosh. <laughs> for, the t- for the audio team. Are you calling our audience dumb? No. <laughs> Bood rage. Is it supposed to be blood rage or boot rage? Because I got to be blood rage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> rage. I like bad. boot rage. Don't know I what... like boot rage too. <laughs> I mean, it might as well be. This oh, is pretty man. bad. I actually watched this, this last boot. year. It's got me raging. There are a lot of blood films, I think, around that, that period of time. Yeah. Just trying to still you know, cash in on the slasher trend. This yeah. one was pretty bad. Pretty bad. Uh, next is Blood Diner or Dinner. That's not a bad one. A bit more Texas wow. Chain, sorry. Serving up human meat. Ah, yeah, cannibals. 
Cool nice. cover, though. Cool cover. Nice. Uh, Creep Show Dose or two. Creep Show two. So these were Stephen King and was it George Romero? I think we're doing these, and they're kind of like the horror anthology films, which I, I don't like anthologies, so I didn't really enjoy them. But uh, they're kind of what tells from the crypt, then sort of span off from as well, with like a crypt keeper telling you these stories. Make sure well, you add that to his Wikipedia page, Justin. What? It's very important. I, I, Owl White I don't knowledge. like horror anthology. He does not like anthologies. Does not like anthologies. Anthologies, jazz dances. Yep, that's all you need. A little film called Evil Dead Two. We'll be getting around to these one day too. The problem with Evil Dead, we actually talked about doing them this year, but the problem with them is you don't just have the original trilogy and the remake. You have now three seasons of the TV show, which is literally following on from the original trilogy with the same cast, same, you know, like same, much of the same team. So it's really hard to cover because you have to cover the TV show. Um, so there's a lot of watching yeah. <laughs> Evil Dead. But yeah, I love the Evil Deads. I love the remake. I love the originals. Love it all. It's great. Little TV known fact, great. never seen them. Any of them. No, well, well, you could be in our Evil Dead one then. This will be our evil, newbie. And I am That's dead. Evil. Says, are Hi. we going to team up again for the Evil Dead? Super Squad? That'd be awesome for the super team. So what we are coming to next is a movie called The Gate. This is a cool kids movie, uh, but in a way that only 80s kids movies could be, where it was actually a bit frightening. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's not as cool as you want it to be, but it's a cool film. Mm-hmm. Great cover as well. Lots of good covers in the 80s. I think. Yeah, I don't know anything <laughs> about it. <laughs> Silence. Yeah, so Ghoulies 2. Yay. Yeah, we're in a lot of uh, like yeah, Critters films, Gremlins films, Ghoulies. I have no idea. The Troll movies. See, Ghoulies, but this like, all, came out, this came all out like, goes into what I was saying about the 80s films and 90s stuff, just being kind of like gritty and dark. Like it was... Sometimes it wasn't an easy sell. Like, if you didn't have your characters right, it just didn't come off properly. Yeah. There's some ugly movies. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Goodies is one of them. Yeah. All right. What else, Justin? House 2, colon, the second story. Which, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm like, man, whoever named this one, brilliant. Yeah, this is Steve Miner, who we know. We covered him. He uh, came in after after House 2. Was it? No, sorry. Just before House to direct uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Two, nice and Part Three. I think our favorite. I think one of our favorite Friday Thirteenth Part Two. Yeah, um, and then he went on to do like Placid and Halloween Seven, which we'll be getting to later on this year. Uh, but this house, the house series, were not were not good. <laughs> not his finest moments. <laughs> not his finest. Huh. Well, we're moving on to Howling Three. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't like any of these Halloween movies. To be honest, no. uh, first one's kind of interesting, but werewolf films it's really like, good. It's like, when is this howling gonna stop? No one likes a long howl. <laughs> there are a lot of these movies as well, man. Some of them are fucking terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Next one is Jaws: colon, The Revenge. Is this a sequel to Jaws? Yes, yeah, Jaws Four. Yeah, that's how the many... one with Michael Caine. Wait, how many? There's Jaws a lot were of Jaws there? films. Only four. <laughs> That's I, it. I only thought there was one Jaws film this what? entire time. No, you didn't. Seriously. No, you did not. That shark comes Come on. back, yo. Dude, I well, did no, I legitimately do. did not know. That's why I was like, oh, is this the second film? Are you kidding me? There are four Jaws films. They came out in close proximity. This one's got Michael Caine and actually the mother from the first one. The second one's got the dad from the first one. Wait, why would you like make a, a sequel to Jaws? 
Like Jaws why was would good. You not? Right off the bat. Because it made a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. The second one's basically the same. The third one's set in Disney World and he gets into the Sea World there. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> it's fucking terrible. What? Are we watching these? Are we watching these? Yeah, we just watch them for fun. Okay. Fourth one's hilarious. Uh, it was one of those things. Remember in Back to the Future, he goes to the future and then on the cinema, there's like a 3D Jaws 34 or whatever it is, like some ridiculous number because they kept thinking they'd just make Jaws movies forever. But no, they only did four. So they stopped it. 1987, done. Yeah. Well, the Monster Squad. Oh, this one's cool good. Kids movies. Yeah. That one's really good. I like it. Like the Goonies with monsters. Yeah. But not as good. But yeah, still great. Yeah. Didn't see it. Justin's, uh, Justin's no idea about 1987. <laughs> Near Dark is, um, what's her name? Bigelow, the director of Hurt Locker and Detroit. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kat- Kath- is it Catherine? Catherine. Yeah, yeah. Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's one of her first films. It's cool. It's got... Some good actors in there. It's a vampire film. It's good. Nice. Um, next one is this super small indie. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, colon, Dream Warriors. You can hear about this on our Nightmare on Elm Street podcast, but it's a lot of people's favorite uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Um, find out if it was ours. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> you mentioned this film. It is Predator. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that sound. Uh, this one is not to be confused with the Jake Gyllenhaal film, but Prince of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be a different name for the Prince of Persia. This was what John Carpenter was doing at the time. And it's not great. Not great. John Carpenter's made some of the best horror films ever made. Maybe like three of them. Um, yeah. But he's made a lot of trash as well. And this is one of them. Well, you know. I don't know. Can't think of anything to say about <laughs> poop gold all the time. You know, sometimes you got to make a little trash to find a little gold. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I Next think that, film I think sounds really out. fun. It's called Slumber Party Massacre 2. Ooh. We watched Slumber good. Party Massacre recently. We the, did. The two and three are bizarre. It was actually filmed, I think we mentioned on a different podcast, just around the corner from where we live in LA. Yeah. It was like, it's just off Lincoln huh. uh, by Venice. Yeah, it's like less oh, than a nice. mile from our house. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, last one is Stage Fright. Oh, that one's good too. Well, we watched the remake of it. Right. There's an original with a big owl head where the killer's wearing an owl, basically. Oh, I love it. Um, and it, and they're like musical slasher movies. This is kind of letting you know where the slasher genre had gone to by this point, I feel. So the original sense. one was a real hoot. Oh, nice. that's a good one. Very nice. Well done. Again, and wasn't you, you afraid to take the performance to the next level. Should have should have retired on Hoot. Yeah, Hoot was solid. <laughs> yeah, but I want to you know try to overcome my stage fright. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, that that uh, ends last. We should get a <laughs> crickets button in this. Place. I need a mute. I need a mute button. That's what I. Need. <laughs> So it was a weird time for horror. Yeah, like I said, we're coming out of slashes. As you can tell, there's a lot. There's some kids' horror films in there. There's some still remnants of like the. There wasn't a Friday the 13th movie that year, which is interesting. No Halloween that year, taking a year off, clearly. But we were on the way out of that stuff and we're getting into more monsters and more strange, you know, trying to figure out what the landscape is going to be. So Clive Barker's Hellraiser came in at a good time because he is doing something slightly different. And you kind of touched on it at the beginning, Justin. 
this isn't your normal slasher film. Pinhead, uh, Pinraiser. Pinhead is not your normal uh, horror icon either. And there is good reason for that. So Clive Barker uh, came from the UK. He was born in 1952 in Liverpool. And he was 35 years old when Hellraiser came out. And he had had his first couple of films uh, that he had written come out the years two years prior. So there was one called Underworld, which Katie and I just watched the trailer to. Quebecta? Nope. Terror. No, sadly not. Not the good one. <laughs> and then he wrote a film called Rawhead Rex, which has become a bit of a cult film now. Uh, but again, because it's very bad. Very bad. That one, the trailer is worth watching. It's really Pretty funny. funny. All right. And this was the first time he directed. He was so pissed off with how his his works had been adapted before that he decided he wanted to do Hellraiser himself. It was originally called Hellbound Heart, which was based on the novel. Now, the novel was written it was written before hellraiser some people seem to say they were written concurrently with each other but it was written before but it was very quick after writing it i think even before it was published it was then signed up to become uh, a movie which was going to be called hellhound heart hellbound heart sorry hellbound heart but a studio which for new world pictures decided that it sounded too much like a romance um, it totally so does no oh <laughs> yeah it's a feel good movie of the year it's like the, so, the uh, book your grandmother is reading, like right before she plays bridge. Well, I love this because then Barker came up with a new title for them. So he said we should call it Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. I love it. <laughs> I wish it was that. That is <laughs> on the nose. But would, would it be? A, would you have a franchise with a title like that? I don't think so. Doesn't they rejected the that because of the overtly sexual references, which is hilarious because. New World Pictures, they're not alive anymore, really. Uh, technically, I think they are, but they don't do anything. They opened in 1970, shuttered in 1997 when Fox, uh, 21st Century Fox bought them, mostly because they owned seven TV stations that they wanted to grab. Uh, but it was founded by Roger Corman and Gene Corman. So, like, Corman films, which are known for exploitation, they'd made Piranha, The Punisher, the original Punisher, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, Heathers, uh, a slasher film me and Katie watched last year called The Initiation. You remember that one? I don't. Uh, where the girls have to break into the sec- her father's oh, security yeah. mall. And, uh, they made the original Children of the Corn, a film called Warlock. But then they were doing films called Student Nurses, Night Call Nurses, The Young Nurses, <laughs> Women in Cages. Oh, wow. They got, they got a little focused, Coleman didn't they? <laughs> liked his exploitation. So I'm kind of surprised that they weren't okay with the sexual references in this. But uh uh, so Clive Barker opened up the floor to his production team saying, I don't know what the fuck we're going to call this movie then. And it took him a while before they settled on Hellraiser. But yeah, a 60-year-old female crew member apparently offered up what you should call this movie is, quote, what a woman will do for a good fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty great. Those British ladies, uh, saucy. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, but yeah, it was a British film. Uh, I've only read the first chapter of the book. I am actually going to read the rest now because Katie, you've—I was expecting you to hate it, and you actually liked it. It was pretty decent. No, it was very well written. He's actually a really good author. Besides the very large print, uh, you could have completely—if I would have picked this up, not understanding that it was affiliated with Hellraiser, I would have. If you would have told me there was a film about this book, I would have been super excited. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he had only he had been writing um, a few like well, he'd written some short uh, novels before. They'd been collected together as books of blood and a couple other things. But he had only been actually published for three years prior to this. Mm-hmm. Nineteen eighty four was his first thing that came out. So and he, so he was in his thirties, but before he had anything out, and he had shot a couple of short films. One was called Salome, and the other was called Forbidden. But other than that, nothing. So this was his directorial debut. 
Yeah, what else do I want to say about this? It was going to be shot in seven weeks, but then it was extended to a 10-week period Whoa. Um, in the end when it sort of spanned from yeah, 900,000 to a million. Lance Henriksen was one of the only famous actors who was offered a role in this. He was actually offered a role of Frank uh, Lance Henriksen, you know, obviously huge in the horror world. Most people will know him as uh, the droid from uh, Alien and Aliens and Alien 3. But yeah, he turned down the role of Frank because he feared he might have to appear in a series of sequels. <laughs> but we will see him in this franchise, so he will be turning up at some point. I also read that uh, Clive Barker tried to take a book out from the library about how to direct because he'd never ri- he'd written screenplays, he said before, but he'd never written a screenplay with the idea of directing it. So he said... I went to my local library to find a book on film directing and they had two, but they were both checked out. And I thought, oh, I'm so fucked. I don't even have a book. <laughs> Seriously. That's wow. what he said. That's brilliant. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get, we'll, we'll get into his successes there or not. But yeah, he went on to write other stuff. So a lot of people know Clive Barker now because he also invented Candyman. And he's had most of his books have been adapted like Book of Blood, Dread and The Midnight Meat Train. Uh, but we'll talk about most of that in our wrap up. For music for this, because I do think it's worth talking about here, we had Christopher Young, who is a real staple in horror films and in Hollywood films. He did A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. He did Species. Uh, he did Rounders. He did Urban Legend, The Hurricane, The Grudge, Spider-Man 3, Drag Me to Hell, and Sinister. Well, that's what. Uh, he's done, I mean, he's done. You look at his IMDb and it's crazy. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of films. And this Was this his first like film he worked no, on? No, this was early on, but it wasn't his first. He'd done a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 before this. Oh, okay. Um, and a few other bits and bobs. All right. So that is the team. They're the people making this. Let's just get right into it, shall we? And start talking about the movie scene by scene. That's let us. So we open with the New World Pictures uh, uh, sign, which to me immediately evokes 80s slasher memories. Totally. And we get quite a protracted, we've got Clive Barker's name above the title, which is kind of surprising for your first directorial debut, but his, you know, books were starting to pick up some steam. And he had had a quote from Stephen King, which said, I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. Um, So he was really like at this point where it looked like Clive Barker was going to be the next big thing. So his name above the title wasn't a huge surprise, but still impressive for a debut. And we get long open titles. We get some cool score and I'd forgotten just how much i like the score from this movie i don't remember how much it comes back for the franchise but i really hope they keep it coming because christopher young does a cool cool score to this and we open up on the box as the titles then kind of fold away into it it doesn't quite work but for me like so many 80s movies it's just got this charm to it like the idea is kind of cool of like goes yeah, inside like that circle cool yeah. kitsch <laughs> yep uh, we're somewhere in the Orient, not sure where, and there's a man called oh. Mr. Cotton. I wanted to add in the beginning, like what initially started somewhere, I was like, the music is cool. It's got like this yeah. epic horror music um, going. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, no, I agree completely. I think it's got a really classic soundtrack to it. Yeah. Yeah, we're somewhere in the Orient. It's a man called Dr. Mr. Cotton, Dr. Cotton, uh, with dirty fingernails, which is an interesting touch, I feel. So dirty. Really, just like meningitis so waiting to happen. So, <laughs> like, what has he been doing? I know he's meant to be like, we find out he's a depraved individual, but like, do you, you can still wash your hands, can't you? Yeah. 
Wait, unless you're digging in the dirt and that's part of your sexual preferences. I don't really know. But yeah, he's buying a box from a very Chinese sounding man who's in the shadows, who as he buys it says, take it, it's yours, it always was. So you immediately get this kind of creepy opening. Feels cliche now, but I still kind of like it. Uh, the box design is just so confident off the bat. Like, Katie, in the book, did it, des- did it describe the box that much? Or? Uh, they don't necessarily describe the box itself. They literally just call it like a plain box. And the only time that you see the design is if you hold it up to a sun, like into direct light. And then you'll start to see the, the fragments and the puzzle-like structure of it so that you can try and get it open. But it does, in the book, it's really interesting because that interaction with him and it's meant to be this guy Kircher in the box and he's the one who sells it to Frank and he's actually gone very much into depth with Frank like what to expect he's told him this is exactly what will happen he's gone into the lore with him of saying you know this is how old and ancient this box is and in it is contained you know all of these pleasures that you won't you're not able to find on earth and it's not necessarily that you have to pay it with money. He actually has to pay it with small deeds. He says that he's not, that are nothing compared to what he's done in his life, but they're not things that he's proud of doing. Right. And that's how right. he pays him for this box. And then he said, he's like, the, he said it takes like, like a quarter of a lifetime sometimes for people to get this box open because the box itself is not the puzzle or something he said like the way to open it is through travel because it itself is a map and then you have to like travel this map to get to the destination which is the opening of it so it's right. like it's very i mean very fantastic the way that he describes the box and how he's obtained it at this point which i really loved and i was really sad because it kind of you kind of skip a lot of that stuff which i understand you kind of have to cuz not everyone has that patience for that setup and exposition yeah and i only read that first chapter and it yeah like you say the in-depth with with what the bit behind the box and then when he actually opens it in the next scene it's this huge chapter that's really beautiful about his experiences when he goes into it here we've got about 20 seconds basically and you don't you don't see any of that at all exactly uh uh, here's a box like and then we cut straight to well there's a sound of a bell ringing out which is in the novel uh, but it's meant to be from a distance coming from like a different land. Uh, I really love the sound of the bell, how it's mm-hmm. kind of incorporated into the soundtrack. It's really, really cool. And then we've just got Cotton, who's sitting in a square of lit candles in the dark room, topless, trying to open a box, uh, which he does so pretty easily. Definitely yeah. no struggle here. I mean, we don't know how long he's been trying, to be fair, but, you know. He is seems... sweating pretty profusely. Yeah. Maybe he's been at it a while. We get some great little 80s lightning animations on the box as he begins <laughs> to open it, uh, which looks like Highlander style. And then little hooks rip into latex <laughs> as yeah. he screams, which is obviously meant to be his yeah. skin. <laughs> Not my latex <laughs> body. Uh, and then we cut to shots of the of a house, which is squalid, and we head up the stairs gradually into a room that we later on find is the room that he was just in. And there's now chains and blood and flesh hanging there's a pillar in the middle that's rotating with bits of people and skulls nailed to it. Yeah. And then, then we get to see our first Cenobite, uh, which is the female Cenobite, who has got this like wire sort of semicircle coming out of her cheeks and a rip in her neck. Yeah. Which I remember when I first watched these films, I thought she'd spoke too much. I, I thought like <laughs> the way you she died her, was due to your cancer. sins in life. Yeah. 
Yeah. She's got like a weird opening there. And she's got she a raspy voice. She does have a voice. very breathy voice. Yeah. Yeah. You're like very oh, breathy voice. You should have not been smoking your whole life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They had some uh, untoward names for her on set. Apparently, she was known as the Deep Throat Cenobite for a long time. Oh so that shit! Changed later, and then people obviously made connotations of what the what it looked like. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> poor person. Yeah. Well, there is like one point that she's like kind of fingering it and like sighing yeah. and moaning, yeah. and I was like, "What is going on here?" She's like, which totally seems within the realms of Clive Barker's right. enjoyments. Yeah, <laughs> I think. student nurse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then, uh, yeah, Chains of Blood. So this is our first real look at what is the trademark Hellraiser look, which is this sort of S and M dungeon, I guess, but taken to the absolute extreme. And then we get Pinhead, first ever time, not known as Pinhead at the time. So let's get into this straight away. Pinhead in the in the book, for instance. Very, very different. Obviously, never referred to as Pinhead at all. No. Uh, there's not even a lead Cenobite in the book, is there? Four that's there. There's like four Cenobites, mm-hmm. and this is what I just got for the first chapter. Uh, pretty much the only reference to Pinhead is they describe someone who looks feminine, actually. Yeah, he says like he actually describes him as having a breathy woman voice. Yeah, breathy female voice, and these sort of emeralded pins, that, well, not even yeah. needles. That like studded through the face. Jeweled. He said it was like jeweled pins that were done in a grid pattern around his yep. head. It's a very it's fashionable look. in the book. Mm. Exactly. Shiny. Uh, when it was a romance. It was romance novel design in the book, <laughs> not in the movie. <laughs> and to be fair, when they adapted it for the film, yeah, they did different designs for things. Obviously, Pinhead has a different look here, um, but he was also never intended to be the lead Cenobite, even when they were shooting. So they did the script. They went to shoot. Um, he was originally just called the priest in everything. And Clive Barker's always hated the name Pinhead. He finds it very undignified. It pisses him off a lot. So whenever he gets to come back and do new things with this, uh, for instance, in the 2011 comics uh, that he produced that we'll get to in our wrap-up, uh, he had the character return to being called Priest again. No one calls him Pinhead whenever Clive Barker's writing it. It's always the priest. So he's not meant to be the engineer? No, we'll get to the engineer. Uh, oh. He is definitely not the engineer. And he also, he's also, Kurt Barker actually is still maintaining right now that a character has a true Cenobite name that he's never revealed. And he's still intending to reveal in a forthcoming work at some point. What, like the woman Cenobite? Uh, yeah. Like Why doesn't Butterball she get a name? I was really upset. He was, she, he named her Deep Throat Cenobite. Oh, well, it doesn't say that in the credits. Everyone else has a name but her. I know. They changed it. Bullshit. The earliest version of Pinhead actually does go back to a 1973 play. Um, so Clive Barker used to write plays and he did them with Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead here. And also, um, I've forgotten his name, the guy who plays one of the mover mattress movers. Um, <laughs> and the play was called, was called Hunters in the Snow, where Doug Bradley played a character called the Dutchman, which was an undead inquisitor and torturer. And later on, one of his short films that you can see on a lot of the, the new versions of Hellraiser Blu-ray, uh, called The Forbidden, which was shot in 16 millimeter. That included a prop in the form of a wooden block with six nails in it. Um, and he was playing with light with what the nails would do on different things at that point. So it kind of combined a bunch of these ideas to create him. But he was never meant to be the lead Cenobite. So they, they got to filming it. The dialogue was supposed to be split across all four of these Cenobites. Uh, but then upon seeing the masks on set for Butterball and the Chatterer, they realized, oh, neither of them could talk. Wait, the Chatterer? <laughs> Not much pre-production. You should just call him Chomper. That's what I wrote him down in my notes. <laughs> Chomper. Chomper. And he's, he's a fan favorite, Chatterer. But yeah, they were all meant to be talking. They realized two of them couldn't. So they split the dialogue between the female Cenobite and, and Priest. 
as he was called at the time. Um, and Doug Bradley ended up giving such a commanding performance that he was just presumed in test screenings of this that he's the leader. So they gradually gave him more and more focus. And this opening scene where we first see him, he's wandering through those chains, Frank's just opened a box, and then he's putting together pieces of Frank's face on the floor. This was originally Butterball, the fatter, uh, licking his face, goggled center right. uh, And it was actually filmed as him. <laughs> I like the names you're giving these characters. <laughs> it's actually filmed as him. And then when they realized that Pinhead was becoming like the poster child for this movie, they went back and refilmed it. Uh, so I think this was actually the last thing filmed for the movie. Um, and I love this intro to Pinhead. You see him just sort of walking through in silhouette from behind. He's very slow, polite with his movements. He looks kind of melancholic. And then he just is reaching down and putting this face together. Then he picks up the box basically unsolves it i guess we're yeah, gonna have to he- get into that <laughs> yeah um and the whole room just disappears in like a little zip and it's back to just being a room in an attic i really love this opening i really do yeah. like it's kind of cliche now but i like the bind the box opening the box seeing this horrible world these strange cenobite characters and then the box and then suddenly it's all just gone and you're left with this house and i don't know for me, it's a really evocative opening. Yeah, it was definitely a, a good way to establish what's going on without having to be like, well, these are this, this, this. You're just like, well, okay, I know how it all kind of works now, and that's messed up. Yeah. It definitely feels like you're saying, like, I remember watching Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and those movies when I was a teenager and I hadn't, I was just getting into horror. And then I got to the Hellraiser films and I was like, what the fuck have I got myself into? <laughs> yeah, there was this uh, is something chains different. everywhere. It's legitimately, it's weird because he doesn't seem, Pinhead doesn't seem as threatening as those other characters, yet he's more chilling. I yeah. think. I would say that I liked this opening, but again, I'm going to be that annoying person who is like, in the book, <laughs> in the book, it was so much more religious based. Like, because they are, they're meant to be kind of this commune from another world or another dimension or whatever and like frank is told he has to have all like this list of things ready in the room for the cenobites to be there for like ritual basis and so it like it gives it this whole sense of authority and um unknowing like he has no idea what to expect he's just so excited for this you know world of pleasure that's going to be opened up to him and like they tell him he needs to have cleaned and strewn flower petals throughout the room for the floor he needs to set up an altar with bones bonbons needles seven days worth of urine and a plate of <laughs> dove's heads for this for the cenobites there and the urine is in case they want to defile themselves at any point in this process like they can like pour their own his urine on themselves and then three of the cenobites come which it says he there are four in the room, but he can only see three. And so the three come, ask him if this is something he really wants to do. He says yes. And so he and then basically he gets launched into this like metaphysical world where he's a he's essentially like serviced by like scores and scores of women. And he ends up having like he comes and that like him coming on the floor is basically what solidifies him to the world because he leaves something of himself behind. And then that's the only reason that the future events are able to happen. But after he has 
like has this romantic experience and he's like, wow, that was like beyond anything I could imagine. And it's like pushed him to his limits and he's already second guessing this choice that he's made. The fourth Cenobite appears and it's this woman who is, she, she says she has bloody lips. She's sitting spread eagle, like with her legs apart on a mound of rotted human heads and all of the human tongues are like lying on her thighs and when he kind of comes out of this euphoric state of whatever, she she looks at him and he says that he fears her even though she's like the most sexual. And she said, oh, you finished dreaming. Good. Now we can begin. And it oh, was, man. then it kind of just everything unfurls on him, you know? So to me, I was like, holy shit, that's insane, you know? Because it's just, it kind of gives you this idea that, oh, yeah, this is this world. This is everything I wanted it to be, blah, blah, blah. And then everything is just literally torn apart. So, which I thought was insanely good. Yeah, whereas here they have to... I know. They have to boil... No, I agree. Like, it's a very different world. Uh, And they have to distill it down here into just, like, violence um, with slight sexual undertones to everything. But, Mm -hmm. like, they don't... Yeah, there's so much more sex in the novel and tying everything into the pleasure and they mention it a few times but no i agree even just from that first chapter i read i was disappointed not to have the pedals and things like that and these yeah it was just like these really nice to touches that wasn't yeah like also one toned you, you guys didn't like the this the little sex ornament and the roach with it oh yeah <laughs> that sex ornament yeah it's pretty which, great yeah we'll, we'll get to so yeah, we don't leave the house, which is kind of cool. We start coming back down through the floors, but we see time has passed. It's daytime. We're not sure how much time has passed. And a newlywed couple who are moving in. Uh, this is uh, Julia, played by Claire Higgins, and Larry, played by Andrew Robinson. We find out that Larry, his family, the house has been in uh, his family for a long time, but he hasn't been back there in 10 years. And he tried to sell the house at one point, but Frank, his brother, and we don't learn his second name at this point, so we don't know it's Cotton refused to sell the house we can immediately tell that his wife julia likes talking about frank i feel Mm -hmm. like she does keep bringing him up looking for little excuses to talk about him yeah larry mentions that he might be behind bars by this point so we are immediately getting an idea for what kind of person frank is a bad boy he is a bad boy now now we get to the thing you're talking about justin and this is reoccurring so i feel we should deal with this in one little lump but yeah (laughs) she says well i suppose it's better than brooklyn so this is where confusion comes. So for me, when I watched this for the first time as a teenager, I'm just like, what well, is it? A very, very, this is different from the other slashes I've watched because it's very British. Like this to me, the house looks British. There's a lot yeah. of British accents. There were American accents too, which is, was a bit confusing, but I just kind of overlooked them. The whole sort of family dynamic of it felt very British to me. And I was always confused with that. And it wasn't until later, yeah, when we started prepping for this that I really realized that that was a decision for new old pictures they were basically like look this film's going to sell better if it's american you're an english writer you said it's in an english world we're going to shoot it in england but you need to make this sell to international so let's make it american now they did a lot of crazy things with that like they did a lot of casting for american people but then they also redubbed a lot so sean chapman who plays frank when he's frank uh his dialogue was completely redubbed by a u.s actor Um, to make him seem more american and they purposely keep a lot of the film inside 
so you can't really see the US, uh, UK countryside and UK town and stuff like that. Um, and they were originally going to, can you fucking imagine this? They were originally intending to redub Doug Bradley wow. with an American accent until Clive Barker to said to the studio, no, you have to come to set and see his performance. And once they saw his performance, they're like, okay, he's, he's how we're going to sell this thing. So we're not going to redub him. Yeah. But yeah, so Justin, you're saying you watched it and you thought you were, you like they managed, they did it. They managed to make you think it was an American film. So it worked. Yeah, it was really bizarre. At first, I was like, okay, random British actress. All right. And then when more of the people came along, you know, like the other yeah, yeah. guys, some of them had British accents. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so I didn't understand why they were there. I knew something was odd, but I couldn't put my finger on why. It would be odd. It is weird. I feel Clive Barker was calling him friends from like his theater buddies or something because otherwise it's just like cast American people. There must be some American people you yeah. could have just cast in those. It's got a tiny roles. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a strange choice, also, um, and it definitely makes for a weirdly modeled film. I feel with where yeah. is the set? I don't know. And it's really smart that they didn't show the outside of the house a lot because the outside. When now I think about it, and now that you told me it's. Uh, it was based or filmed in England is all the houses are brick and not a lot of houses yeah. in the US are brick. So if I would have saw more yeah. of the outside, I would have been like, oh, they're not in Wait America. Yeah, they did a scene we'll get to later where Kirsty's up against the fence for most of the time. She's outside yeah. just yeah. to make you not know where you're at. Yeah. So we learned a little bit, yeah, about Kirsty, who we'll later on find is uh, Larry's daughter. Um, Katie, you can get to that in a second. For me, I'm most shocked just that the mother's smoking inside with that hairdo because, oh, my God. I know, especially because you had, like, the Aquanet hairspray at that time and that stuff yeah. was flammable. I'm worried as her head's just going to go up in flames. Whoa. So we should say here from the book, Katie, and I think we get it here as well, but from the book, she is meant to be knockout beauty. She is supposed to be, like, no one can concentrate when she's around gorgeous. Like, there, there's a line in the book at one point um, it's actually the guy's name is actually Rory in the book instead of Larry. And he says that at one point when she looks dubious, she scrunches her face up in such a way that she's so beautiful that it scares him. Like and then the girl Kirsty is meant to just be like in awe of her. Like there's nothing that Julia can do, whether she's, you know, like, I don't know. She could be traipsing through the mud and she looks like she's doing it for a model shoot. Like that's the vibe that you get from what they're trying to create. So Jessen, I want were you were you finding this lady attractive? No. I just found her as like <laughs> some angry lady who's just like, Why would I want to live in this shit house? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She just seemed pissed off. Not even like in a power position or anything. She just this looked like she was always smelling poo. <laughs> yeah. She it's has, that she eye always shadow. has that look on her face. Resting. And that eyeshadow and the hair is like, uh. I think I watched this film 10 years after it was made. And even at that point as a horny teenager, she was distracting to me by, oh my God, she looks just terrible. Yeah. Just yeah. the, and I, just the eyeshadow terrible. and the hair looks so terrible. Um, I'm sure she's a beautiful lady in real life, but like putting all that, like that 80s style look on her was just not good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, uh, yeah, it's a problem for me here. And it was a problem for me when I first saw it, and it still is now. Uh, but she finds where Frank's been sleeping. He's been dossing in, in the house, and she finds photos of him fucking lots of women. Yeah. Which, and th- who would want to with fingernails like his? <laughs> like, exactly. The f- uh, 
And just on a dirty mattress in a squalid, like, yeah. come on. Yeah, it's pretty gross. But this is what Clive Barker's into, clearly. And supposedly, well, not supposedly, I read that that was the pictures that they took were of him with a real prostitute that they took. They had a, really? an actual photographer come in and everybody from the set kept trying to sneak into that room to see, but they were like, no, because it was an actual prostitute. They got to come and take those photos with him. Huh. I could believe that. Wow. Yeah. That's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Larry Larry can tell that it's Frank. He doesn't see the photos, but Larry can tell Frank's been there because, like you said, Justin, there's a little Kama Sutra-style statue of two people fucking... Yeah. Which I guess he takes everywhere with him, like a little good luck job. Like, yeah, right. gonna, hey, you want to come over and see this cool little statue I got? <laughs> well, I think he pulls it out while on the date. It's like, we can do this, or we can do yeah. this. <laughs> I got some cards. Look, I got a Rubik's Cube we could play with. <laughs> There are all these religious things around the house. Yeah. Now, I get in the context of the the Cenobites, it works well. But are we meant to take for this just that the previous, like his his grandparents or whatever, were really religious in here? I or took something? it as the grandma. Okay. I, okay. I didn't even know what to take it as. Also, every time we say the Cena people, I just think you're saying Cenobites as in like cinnamon, like Cinnabon, <laughs> tiny <laughs> like Cinnabon. little Cenobites. I was like, are we just making you hungry? Yeah. I was like, man, these sound del- these guys sound delici- delicious, not dangerous. That's well, what they want you to think, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> and then you open the, the box. The pleasures of food. Sloth. Delicious <laughs> cinnamon lies within. It is interesting because the word Cenobite is actually it's a real word and it just means a member of a communal religious order. Yeah, that's see, literally all it means. So it's all about religion. Which is true for most religions. So this, there is a commentary for going on here. In a book, they're called The Order of Gash. Is that what they're yeah. called? Yeah. <laughs> Which seems quite just those explicit. gashes. Yeah. What's going on? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, religious on the rounds. Kirsty then brings up to her dad. So, it should be said, this is um, Ashley Lawrence's first ever film that she's been in. Um, she's not great in this first scene on the telephone, I'm fine. She's pretty wooden. Um, and I know some people who have huge problems with Ashley Lawrence. They really don't like her in this film. But she looks right for me she's like well that's what i expect from an 80s horror movie she looks like a final girl she's got that kind of girl next door look where you can believe she'll be sweet but she could also kill someone by the end of the movie you know yeah Yeah. but that's she her look was way more of what i was expecting for julia yeah but maybe like as a blonde or something yeah we're talking about this off screen i don't know if it's because one of my first loves was jennifer connelly in labyrinth yeah but I remember being like massively in love with Ashley Lawrence and Hellraiser as well. There's a certain look that I think Jennifer Connelly just instilled in me of what I want from my lead girls in these kind of 80s movies. Right. And yeah, she's not acting great here, but I do. I think she looks right for it. And she's, yeah, she's trying to find a job despite her dad saying that she doesn't have to. So we, you know, learn that she's a good person trying yeah. to make her own cover and thing. She was also but kind, of kind of angry. Well, yeah, it's weird. They find because they have this conversation and then they put down a phone and then they linger on her for ages, just looking sort of melancholic after the call. Yeah. And then her dad's standing there thinking as well. And then suddenly he's Julia and like turns. And it's really strange because Katie's, I think, about to give us a bit of information that shows how this is different from the book. But we've learned that they're father and daughter but the end of that call is like something bad has happened. That's how it looks. It's like there's yeah. some like they haven't talked before, or but if you read into it how it could have been shot, for the information I think Katie's about to give, it would make more sense. Right. Which is strange. Yeah. Katie, tell us what is the deal between Kirsty and this character in 
the book. Well, dun, dun, dun. she is not meant to be his daughter in the book. In the book, she's meant... It doesn't really solidify who she is to Larry or Rory or whoever you want to call this guy, but you're meant to feel that she either works with him in some capacity or she's an old friend of his from before he married I thought they called her Julia. literally his assistant, I thought. At well, one point, it makes it? her sound like that because she kind of shows up on the scene when they're moving into this house and Julia like accepts that she is there. So it's almost as though she already lives by where they are or she's part of his job. Like Julia just takes her as you're a part, like you, I can't get away from you. Like she's something to Larry that Julia just kind of has to accept. But Julia also has a very like nothing to worry because I'm so much prettier and I've got him wrapped around my finger. So even though I feel like it's very obvious you get from Kirstie that she has feelings for Larry. And so she's constantly fighting against that whilst very obviously seeing that he's infatuated with Julia. Which for me with this scene, Would that's make how more this sense. scene is shot. Yeah. <laughs> like it exactly. ends with them both looking like, yeah. oh, they're having an affair or something. Yeah. It's really they strange. both look very guilty. Yeah, it's yeah. really weird. Maybe they started just, and they're like, you know what? It just doesn't read weird. correctly as... Like they seem yeah. more like a father daughter. Let's just change it. Yeah, I don't maybe because he I never explains any anything that I've read. It never explains why he changes their roles. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it could have been late in the day because it's quite an easy thing to change late in the day that relationship. Yeah, I feel. yeah. So yeah, they decide they're going to move in. Uh, we get this great scene where he's with the two movers and he snarks at his wife because like one of the movers and this is how you know they're trying to play it for american audiences and not british because they'd, they'd want tea if we're in britain and instead they ask for a beer <laughs> yeah we're in america um and then the, the wife's just come out of julius has come out of the kitchen he's like hey how's it going in there well why don't i get the beer because i've got nothing better to do yeah what was that shit about so I know weird. they just seem so angry at each other and yep. i just to me i was like you don't have a happy marriage there's already there's like you guys just argue all the time i don't feel any love between those two at all yeah there's some weird also there's like some weird sexual vibe thing with the guys like hey so a beer. oh yeah i'm like what is that well, that's what the, the hell's that about it's like that's the leftovers of her meant to be that beautiful like right. that anybody in the room is gonna just like lust after her immediately yeah and they're just and I like what I mean. Even as a horny teenager, I'm looking at this and going, "What are you doing, guys?" Like right. I know, like yeah. for starters, you're playing into terrible stereotypes of moving men. But yeah. <laughs> for seconds, she is not worth your time. Well, She's and the fact that nightmare. they were so very clearly American was very throwing to me as well. Well, one of them actually isn't. So, although he was, um, yeah, I think he is putting on an American accent. But yeah, it's the the other guy is Dave Atkins, who I think is actually the one, like, you know, like the thinner one out of the two who does most of the sort of leering. Yeah. Uh, he was offered, so at the time, Doug Bradley and Dave Atkins have both worked with Clive Barker on his theater work, and both of them were offered two roles. And it's like, you can be the priest, who turned out to be Pinhead, or you can be moving in mattress guy. <laughs> and both of them wanted to be moving in mattress guy because oh. you don't see the actor's face. Like they're like, I don't want to be in prosthetics. I want to get into movies. You need to see my face. Clearly this is a better role. And when you looked at it originally on paper, Pinhead didn't have that many lines either. So the mattress guy arguably had about the same amount of lines probably. But as Doug Bradley went back to him to tell him he wanted to be the mattress guy, Dave Atkins had already got in there quicker. Um, so Doug Bradley was actually kind of disgruntled that he had to be pinhead until obviously ended up being 
career defining role. Right. Yeah. Dave Atkins is probably pretty pissed off about now. Yes. So we get these weird shots then of Kirsty wandering by the docks. I think. Yeah. I was like trying to figure out the symbolism here because they do this super yeah. long shot of her like looking up at this very harsh like metal bridge covering structure and they just scan with it for a good 20 seconds and i don't understand yeah it's very weird it's, it's just really like they weird. just needed some they're like we need to make it, it look like, like it's a filler. city in america there's yeah. bridges in america exactly. you know that way we could tie it into new york yeah and then it's even weirder because then they follow up but she arrives at the house and she's looking at she stands outside the house and looks at it like the house has done something to it before you know she looks at it like oh i've been here before and something bad happened in this yeah. house it's it's really weird, but then as soon as she goes inside and starts talking to her father, we know she's never been there because she says, "Oh, this is a big house, me like." And he's and he said he like he had been there ten years before, so she's like she's eighteen in this. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, something like minimum because yeah. she's moved out and she's living on her own now. So ten years ago, she would have been a kid. She would have been around. Like if her father's been to the house, she's probably been to the house before. If her grand well, maybe not or. because if they're living in New York and she's young, and maybe like by that time her mom hasn't died because we don't know how long ago her mother has died. And they, he and Julia are meant to only have been married for like four and a half years at this point. So yeah, right. if you do the math, she could have potentially just been either her mom was still alive and the grandmother was sick or something, and then he like was out at the house without her across okay. the pond or whatever. Yeah. Okay. okay. But it was uh, also really weird, weird relationship. how cheerful she was and happy after their conversation that yeah. happened maybe like a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look really just like something's wrong and then <laughs> and she just comes in all happy. It was also weird that he they kissed each other on the lips. I know. They do, don't they? They totally do kiss each other on the lips. So like, weird. I was just like, Which okay. is neither a European or an American thing to be doing. No. Just to confirm, as an English person, we don't kiss no. each other on the lips. Yeah. You can. You might want to use that line to pretend that we do, but we do not. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know, man. Like, Which, again, it's like, are these bits maybe left over in some way? Because that was the thing for me is like, this plays again to me like it's not my father and daughter very much. Maybe until it's you just like underlying... That, you know, weird sexual fantasy town things. Honest to God, the first time I watched it, that's what I thought was going on. I was like, oh, all right, they're like, he's molested her or something. But then she seems all happy when she's around him. And it's like, I don't know what's yeah, going on. Like, here I have at all. no idea. Well, she did um, say, because when they were looking at her, because he like fought for her to be in this role or something, right? Because they wanted to get a bigger name for her, like yes, to play her. Yeah. And then he fought for her. And she said that her initiation was, I met Clive, and he said, okay, your uncle's wearing your father's skin. He wants to kill you and have sex with you. Probably not in that order. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. she was probably struggling to really understand what she was meant to be to each of these characters, too. Yeah. So you think she just went in for a kiss on the mouth? And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Because, like, they definitely do have this weird mood between the two of them. It's, it's so weird. She's like, I'm a little he's just a girl. He's yeah. a weird guy anyway. He <laughs> thought she was younger. And it's like, no, you're you're an older girl. You don't kiss your dad on the lips anymore. <laughs> I, re I really like her in this scene, though. Like, I had problems with her on the phone. But here, I like her. She just seems, you know, how, how she needs like, to be. Yeah, like she just feels like kid. a final girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's that fun girl. Uh, we get, though, then. Come to daddy. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get to, 
we get the mattress mufas thing going oh is that your daughter she's got her mother's looks and then larry just goes her mother's dead yeah <laughs> good way doesn't to skip a beat at all yeah. like as soon as the guy says it, he's like her mother's dead it's good. I mean, we get we get exposition in a natural way, though, which is good. Yeah, and I like that the other mover dude just starts like snickering and treating his berries like, yeah, oh, yeah. Ass. It's like, dude. Yeah. I love the line too when she comes in. He's like, "You want to buy a bed?" Like, yeah. What? yeah, yeah. And she's like, "Not what she says." She's like, "Not right now," or something. Is like, "Not you know." Yeah, not something I don't remember. Yeah. Felt like an ad libbed a little bit. Dark. Yeah. Uh, so now we get flashbacks of Julia and Frank meeting. I love this shot. She opens the door. Dude. He's standing in the doorway in the pouring rain, just leaning in. <laughs> and she seems ready to invite him in before she even knows who he is. Yeah. She's just like, like, oh boy. Yeah. It's, and then he's like, I'm Brother Frank. Yeah. It's, she's, she's just thinking, hallelujah, it's raining man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, with that mullet, she's just excited yeah. anyone's looking but at that- her. That line is so good. It's such like a weird, I thought she was just having like a fantasy. Like she didn't even know who Frank yeah. was. And she was looking at the picture because she's looking at the pictures and then it cuts to the flashback right. of yeah. the rain. And then just, you're going to let me in? I'm brother yeah. Frank. I'm <laughs> like, what is this weird sexual fantasy that's about to play out? I know. Uh, yeah. So then she's looking down the room that Frank opened a box and she's up in the attic room. And we get all the extra flashbacks of her as we see them having an affair. Um, and this fucking terrible shot of her just like reacting to it all, holding her chest. Oh my God. Just like looks like she's really turned on just by the memory of everything that happened between them. Uh. And then for, like Frank using a little tiny blade. I love it's not a big blade. It's this little tiny Switch pocket blade, blade to yeah. cut, her, yeah. cut her nightgown. She's wearing a fucking nightgown for starters. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah. There's a wedding dress on the bed to show this is like right after her wedding. Married. Or she's killing her. It's right before. Yeah. It's meant to be like okay. four months before. And then, yeah, after they've had sex, we get Frank saying it's never enough. Yeah. <laughs> never the enough. Best, the best thing about it is like, they're like, oh, there's your wedding dress. What's happening? They're having sex right on it. Literally yeah, on the wedding dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, At least keep it on or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's so Well, I ridiculous. guess the scene, because then the book, it was meant to be like, Cause he's really he's supposed to be into like some really dark sex stuff. Like, doesn't take no for an answer. He's like really into BDSM and all this like just bottom of the barrel of that time mentality. And this was meant to be like in the book he actually rapes her and she, but she secretly like loves it. So it's meant to be that she she she's never met a man who who knew what she wanted without him telling or like without her telling him. And I was like, well, that's not really the way that rape is. But then I guess they, they actually shot that scene as more with that sort of hostility between behind Frank. And when they went to sell it, the people were like, no, we need to tone this down a little bit. Like this is a little too much. So he said, I had to change, I had to trade in the sodomy for the, for the click knife basically right what he said so he's like that's why they had to transition that so widely there's quite a lot of bits they had to edit out of this film yeah Yeah. i just like they said even just extra thrusts during the sex scene edited out yeah i like how just immediately after they're done he like kind of rolls away she's like it's not enough just angry every girl wants to hear after it's never enough 
Meanwhile, Larry is downstairs helping to move a guys and he rips his hand on a nail that's sticking out of a banister. I don't know if this meant to be a nod to Pinhead or not. I feel it's just a coincidence. But yeah, this is the bit. This is really weird. When we were watching, I was like, fuck, I remember wincing at this bit for some dumb reason. Just the idea of getting you just rubbing your hand up against a tetanus infused nail sticking out of banister. Yeah, and then Larry comes up to uh, Julia in the attic. He's got his hand held out. As soon as he cuts himself, yeah. he's just like, Julia. Yeah, it was really weird because <laughs> it was like, it was juxtaposed with the scene that was happening, the sex on the wedding dress yeah. and him like pulling the bed and it's happening at the same time. You're like, tension's yeah. building for both. And then as soon as she orgasms is when he cuts his hand and then he, and then he exactly. goes, Julia. <laughs> I read it but down it's and it's like, like, what the fuck? <laughs> I like these ideas. I like the idea of editing between, yeah, they're, they're like struggling pushing the bed in these little thrust motions while you have them fucking on the bed in a flashback in these mm-hmm. thrust motions. And then like you say, yeah, the parallel of the pain for him with the pleasure, pleasure for her. Yeah. Right. And that's definitely, you know, the whole point of the film. Yeah. Uh, but the, the actual reactions and the acting of it is Did not, not great. hit it on the Well, and it's head. really telling of, of Larry's character because he's like very anti-blood. Like he can't even look at it when yeah. that darkness and that like disgust is what she's really needing i guess in her life or what she's yeah missing. this is the precursor to 50 shades of gray <laughs> it really is this is what 50 um, shades of gray was supposed to be <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and then he's like in the attic and he's just bleeding yeah. everywhere yeah. yeah i was like dude what are you doing you walked down the hall with tons of blood oozing out. i'm like great you made yeah. a mess you're an idiot just Huge go to the bathroom mess. and shout yeah, it's it's he, and he's just so like it's very hard to like Larry. I feel <laughs> he's so, he so annoying, wimpy in this. Yeah, yeah and her face when floor. he walks in is just repulsed. Like, she just yeah. she has her arms crossed and she literally steps away from him and just yeah. like scowls at him. Like she's so disgusted by him, so obviously. Yeah, and I think it's just yeah the weakness of his character. I think is what yeah. she's disgusted with. But it's like what are they doing together to begin with? To be honest, yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, but then we got this kind of cool shot, floorboard sucking the blood in, um, which I, I liked. Just nice, simple, you know, reverse stuff, but it, it works well. And they leave, and then we get to see what happens. So this is apparently, if you believe what people say, uh, this is Tony Randall. So Tony Randall, who we're going to be covering next week because he directs Hell, uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. He was called in from America to go to England to visit the set to see what was going on because they were worried in America because they weren't really there to watch over things, that it was just going to be a film about people walking up and down stairs. So it's going to be an English film about people walking up and down stairs. We want to make sure it's got some good horror elements. We're trying to raise the hell. Exactly. And Clive Barker originally didn't have this whole scene. So Tony Randall, apparently, he credits himself with coming up with the pan under the floorboards. We see the blood going through it. We see the heart forming under there and start beating. And then we get this very intense uh, practical effect uh, sequence using reverse effects using like tons yeah. of different things like models puppets people and things uh we get like skin rebuilding itself a skull starting to build itself arms lifting out of the floorboards and then a spinal column which attaches itself to a head and then a sort of very roughly formed skeleton with tendons and stuff screaming in the attic very 80s very cool like i think it yeah looks great yeah i really do and, they- um, and i'm glad they put this in the initial cut of this didn't even have the transformation scene. Like that's where they had to go back. And that's when they dubbed everybody into Americans and then 
they gave somebody gave him whoever the production team was or whatever they got them an extra like 25k because he wasn't gonna he didn't have enough money to do the transformation scene so he was able to come back and redo this one which i thought was awesome because it really makes it's so iconic this scene for this film yeah no definitely definitely and i feel like you're getting a good punctuation there of the horror and we're, we're gonna get to it for me this is a film very much of two flavors and whether you like both flavors enough you know is is the difficult thing but here we're definitely getting yeah more of the proper horror stuff happening uh where elements of just sort of drama sexual familial thriller have been coming in for sure with julia and and frank mm-hmm. but yeah so they're holding a moving in dinner party kirsty's getting chatted up by a boy at the table who's impressing her not just trying but succeeding in well, impressing her cool cigarette move he's like bah, yeah that bah. cigarette move is amazing come on it's like, he's oh. like smoking it and then he puts the stub like he rolls his tongue and puts the stub inside his mouth and then out again and then looks at her like aren't i awesome yeah, pretty <laughs> yeah. Much. well then he has that crazy line where he like fills her her glass up with wine or whatever and yeah. she's like that's enough that's enough she's like i'm not gonna be able to stand up he's like so lie down and her and dad everyone's fine. I know yeah. and her dad just starts laughing and I was like, this is so weird. Yeah, that was really This is where honestly as a teenager I'm still thinking something's going on with this dad and her for sure. Like, I he know. seems fine with all yeah. of this. Also, everyone was just super square at that party. Yeah. Like, Man. Well, it's because they were really British. I was going to say that. <laughs> I was like, because you can tell those are British people. Yeah. Now that I know it's British people, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. But initially I was like, two, <laughs> what a bunch of squares. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to England, Justin. <laughs> Oh, what's that? I'm immediately like, this is a very British dinner party that's yeah. happening I mean, right I've, now. It's like, know. oh, you're going to bed? I'm really sorry. We should be leaving right well, now. <laughs> we'll shove off now. Yeah, that makes sense why she's like, I'm going to bed now. And everyone's kind of, yeah. it was just like, oh, she can do that. I was like, wow, that's really rude and kind of weird. You invited people over and I was just like, well, <laughs> F this party. I'm going. <laughs> Britain, you can be, you can be rude. Yeah. Uh, but Julia, yeah, she does leave, but to go up to the attic where she meets with Frank for the first time. So she's up there. He suddenly reaches out, grabs her leg. She seems horrified. And then he's crawling across the floor. I really love this shot. It looks to me, I don't know. I couldn't find any info on it, but it looks like they got like a paraplegic or something because like the legs aren't really there yet for yeah. him. It's just like a body crawling across the floor towards her. Um, or maybe it was just, yeah, a child or something that they put in there. But it's it's creepy. Yeah, yeah also- it really is. Why go into the attic if you hear like sounds and you're just like, let me close the door behind me. She like, closes it all the way. <laughs> I'm just like, you, you don't, don't close the door all the way. <laughs> well, I feel like, okay, well, here's the thing. I, I, I believe her journey, she's drawn to this because of Frank and her relationship with Frank and all that stuff. Kirsty's journey, I'm going to, when we get to it, I have yeah. a little bit more trouble with, but I'm believing Julia's, you know, she's just drawn up there. Frank's kind of calling out to her, I guess. Um, and we get this very, it's a pretty quick scene to her going from seeing, oh, okay, there's a zombie man who claims to be Frank. And he goes, don't look at me. in an attic. I said, don't look at me. <laughs> she goes, oh, God. He goes, don't look at me. And then she looks and goes, I said, don't look at me. I said, do not look. I'm Frank. <laughs> but she goes from like seeing him, being terrified of him, learning it's Frank, accepting it's Frank. And kind of being okay with it yeah. <laughs> in one scene, which she's overacting a lot here. But I have to say, I do kind of buy it enough. I don't come out of that scene going, oh, I don't believe that, you know, her journey with this. I'm kind of like, okay, I do, I do buy it you know, between them both. 
I think mostly because he just looks awesome. And the music is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely runs this scene for her. So this is, as I mentioned at the beginning, a different actor. So Oliver Smith plays Frank when he is the monster. It is not played by Sean Frank, Sean Chapman, who was redubbed anyway for Frank, which is interesting because why? <laughs> they said he was the thinnest man they could find. So uh, he would still look skeletal even with layers of makeup. So just get him to play Frank the whole time. I don't really know why. But to be fair, they pulled it over me. I never noticed before. It I don't know, maybe guy. under all of that gross makeup he's like not that hot and he can't stand out in the rain and take his shirt off <laughs> and talk is, like yeah. batman <laughs> yeah and go that i'm brother frank you gonna let me in like i do also want to say here that this is the attic is the only soundstage they had for this film and they didn't even shoot it all it was only effects stuff that they shot on the soundstage everything else was shot in a real house which clive barker wanted to do because he claimed it made him more creative to figure out how to shoot around this stuff and that's why honestly you have a lot of vertical shots you have a lot of shots mm-hmm. looking down those stairs um, at people because it's pretty much the only place you could put the camera basically which i agree with i like that idea i like you know constraining yourself to figure out how to shoot sure sure <laughs> so here's a problem though we have this little tiny bit of blood from larry's hand which brought frank back to a full fully formed sort of skeleton tendon man with yeah. a sort of weird white yeah. Skeletor almost sort of face. He looks a bit like Master of the Universe Skeletor. But oh my God, how much more they're going to have to try and put in him to make him human before the end of this movie. Yeah. That little bit brought him this far. It's like, it doesn't look like he's missing much. Just a few more muscles and some skin. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. But it's the the pure blood from his brother. The bond that holds them together. Well, maybe. His blood. You know what? I haven't thought of it that way. I'm going to give him that. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Yeah. It is the yeah, family like supercharged. Blood, supercharged. Yeah. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Kirsty wearing a very cool hat, is hanging out with her new boyfriend, walking to Subway on a date. Uh, this is again a weird little conversation. Not to be confused with Subway, the sandwich place. Not yet. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're walking technically to the underground. We're walking to Subway, but they're pretending it's a long. New York Subway because <laughs> they have another weird conversation, which is like, "Oh, I thought all of you were prudes," and he was like, "Well, you must have been hearing about the wrong people or something." It's like, are they, is she, does she think he's American? I was getting really confused. It's like, is she an English person who's meant to move to America? Is he an American person moved yeah. to England? That's very weird. Very weird. But they get followed by a homeless dude. That looks like Jesus. <laughs> he, what Jesus That's are you I talking th- about? <laughs> you know, the dirty the, Jesus. I mean, he had like the, you know, blue eyes, giant beard, brown hair. And because there was like showing a ton of like religious things. I was right. like... So this is like Jesus, homeless guy. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, he's credited as the derelict. That's the only name he gets in this. I have found out information about him being derelict, which I'll we'll talk about at the end of the podcast. Because uh, it's definitely who is this derelict? What you guys get from it? I'm interested of before we kind of share. He's a male model. What he's meant to be? <laughs> because derelict I licked my balls. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking. It's from Zoolander. It's so good. <laughs> Come on. He's someone who I still I had a lot of trouble with the first few times. I, like, I don't know what the fuck he's meant to be, but we'll get there. Meanwhile, Julia is lying in bed with Larry, who's fast asleep, and she's remembering just how good sex was with Frank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we get this cool phrase, this cool shot. This is one of my favorite shots, actually, of Frank's face when he's just sit waiting in the dark, but he's got enough wetness on his face, light is just highlighting it. Yeah, it's really cool. It's cool. Gooey Frank is what I wrote down. Gooey Frank. 
Then she opens the door in him in the attic. The light shines. It looks really cool. And then she tells him that she's going to do it. She'll help him out. She'll help get him more blood. because That's what he needs to become fully formed. But now here is where we get to where I'm going to be a bit confused. And I want to know, Justin, and I mean, Katie, you have a different relationship, obviously, with the book. But what do you get from this? So meanwhile, Kirsty is having dreams of falling feathers, birds flying, People lying under white sheets that fill up with blood as babies scream in the distance. Now, just to be clear, I love this scene. This was one of my favorite, this is one of my two favorite scenes in the entire movie. And I'm a huge fan of Silent Hill. And Silent Hill have always been very upfront. They took everything from Hellraiser and Jacob's Ladder. That's where they took all of their stuff from. And this is a pure, this is like, this is how a Silent Hill scene should look in film. Yeah. But what the fuck? Like, what does anything have to do with Kirsty? Why is she getting these? Is this a premonition? Is this like, why has the box has no relationship to her? I think it was meant to be because she immediately calls her dad. So I think it was literally like that she has this fear association with her dad, like of losing him. And I, to me, I was like, well, maybe it's, we're supposed to read into her mother had a tragic death. And then, so she's just has this fear of, of being an orphan, like of losing her one last relation. But yeah, it is really weird. Like the whole prostate, like, prostrate on the bed and then the baby crying i could not understand but i don't know to me it was just like kind of this tarnishing of innocence fear of abandonment like blah 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 thing for her father yeah i just was like i don't know crazy yeah bad bad dream yep she was on acid saw jesus's face and this (laughs) is what happens But yeah. Also, uh, wait. Can I go back to that homeless dude? He's creepily staring at her, and she says nothing. Yeah. A few. She's uh, just like, and it happens again, basically. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the first uh, the first few times I watched this, I was like, "Well, this is a really cool scene." To me, I didn't even think about it as deeply as Katie is there, which you could be right with. But like for me, it's just like, all right, it's just to do with you know what's inside the box to do with hell, like opening up these places. But it doesn't. I don't understand relationship that has to do with her. I'm watching it this time because it's going to happen a few times. She's already had the derelict guy following her. She's now having these dreams as soon as she's seen him. I'm like, is she meant to be having premonitions? And if so, why is she meant to be having premonitions? Because she's going to have more later on. But yeah, I'm a little confused with this stuff. Um, yeah, and then the guy sits up under the sheets and it's definitely meant to be her dad because she rings her dad, like you said, who doesn't mind being woken up in the middle of the night. These are just too happy. This is a very happy father-daughter combo going on here. <laughs> yeah. So also, weird. I like how that dude she hooked up with is sleeping on the ground. Oh, she's yeah, in a yeah, tiny yeah, little fuck? room. No, that's so weird. They're sleeping. I thought it was in separate beds. It's like yeah. she's got two single beds spread apart in her new room and she's making yeah, her boyfriend like- sleep in the other one. <laughs> Well, it's not yeah. her boyfriend like, at that point. Like, they've literally... I mean, they that's up. their Why first night the together. Ground? They made so, out and then they went back to her place. They've hooked up for sure. No, no, no. I know. But to me, I was like, that was that first night that they had just left her parents' house. And then she gets back there. Yeah, they have sex or whatever. But I was like, no, at no point in my life would I have been like, oh, yeah, that sex was so good. I'm going to sleep on the floor next Spot to your floor. bed. <laughs> yeah. Made no sense. Very so weird. I was like, "What the hell?" Very weird. I, I want. There's more. There's more stories here. I want to know. But oh, now and in the get- book, he's meant to be a cat breeder. By the way, he's like this breeder. really nerdy oh, yeah. cat breeder guy who keeps talking to her about breeding cats. <laughs> he knows a lot about the perfect kitties. <laughs> God, 
I can see him as a cat breeder from the shirt. From the shirt he's going to be wearing later in this movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool guy. Mr. Cool Guy. Now we get to the crux of the movie. This is what Julie is going out to 80s bars to be very British men to learn them she back She was an house. 80s business badass rock star <laughs> is what I wrote down for her outfit. That was like, earrings. Yeah. It's insane. Like that first father in with the guy and her get up and yeah, those earrings are just like, this is the 80s in a snapshot. This is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. But yeah, very British men. Bring them back to her house for Frank. The first one, we get a proper long scene he, of it in the attic. He uses a super smooth line though. He goes, we could have a drink together if we're here alone or if we're here both alone <laughs> i was like wow you did you're it. smooth man you did it and again i'm still trying and to, you're super british i'm still trying to imagine these scenes as if she's really really pretty <laughs> like that's how yeah. i'm trying to imagine them and none of these guys match up but yeah he brings back to the attic long scene he doesn't seem to mind fucking oh. her on the floor in that room apparently he he does say another line i wrote down his lines because his lines were really <laughs> stupid so he kisses and he puts his like hand on her face and I, I guess this is his like line. He goes, feel like I've known you forever. I know. Yeah, I was like, does. what is that? I was like, wow, what a creepy ass dude, man. <laughs> he's like, what? We're going to do this, right? I think. Uh, sorry, sorry. I think I they're like, the lines wow. though that legitimize to her. Right? Yeah, he can fucking die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he was a nice guy, she wouldn't take him back. Yeah, yeah. Don't, I, I have the biggest problem with like, no, I don't care how, even on my horniest day in the world, I would never want to have sex with a strange woman I just met with that hairdo on the floor of a room that looks like it's literally out of Silent Hill. It's just. Once I got to the house, I mean, like, maybe I'd be like, ah, whatever. And then I'd go to the house and then I'd go, nope. Not happening. I'm coming inside. Not You're going to murder me. Someone's dying. Let's here. just do it outside. We'll just do it out <laughs> We'll just dirt. do it in the car. We don't even have to go inside. We're in England. There exactly. are hedges everywhere. So she hits him in the head with a hammer, and then Frank starts sucking him, squeezing him. Yeah. And he goes, don't look at me. <laughs> he's really sh- He's a shy boy. He says boy. that line again. He's very shy. He's very shy. He says, don't look at me. We see him in other scenes putting his fingers under people's skin. He doesn't use the whole bodies. He just seems to take the blood or the essence or the soul. Is he taking souls? Is that he, what he's doing? He's, because he took the blood just, of like, his brother. He he stabs them in the jugular so they bleed out right. Yeah, he, like a lot. vampires them. Right. Yeah, so he's like puncturing it and the blood's coming out. Okay. Yeah. So Frank's already looking a little bit better. He's still a fleshy skeleton of tendons and veins. And then we get his come to daddy line. And then he fills up a boob a little bit. And then she goes to lick his finger, which luckily doesn't quite happen. So gross. Uh, Also, let me add, before she did this wardrobe change, she goes into the bathroom and there's like blood on her and on her dress. And she nicely unbuttons yeah. her her like blast i'm like you're kidding me right because you're not gonna get the stains out yeah. you should just throw the rip thing it off is done because rip the shirt off fucking throw it in the sink you're you're really yeah just it's just ridiculous it just made me british film yeah british film i know that's why i really I, now that it makes it all makes sense now <laughs> <laughs> just murdered someone with a hammer i'm going to undress very slowly and properly yeah, so then we get Larry comes home downstairs, whistling away because he's just a happy chappy. And she's taken the dead body and puts it in the other attic room. Why not just, no one goes in that one because it's clearly got mold. So why not just leave it in Frank's attic room? And why, I mean, like Frank doesn't want to eat the whole body because he's fussy apparently. But I just, oh, this is very weird to me. Um, and I don't really deal with that for most of the film, that she's just keeping these bodies in that room. Yeah. 
Well, in the book, it was meant to be that she was afraid that at one point that Larry was going, because they were initially going to put their master bedroom into the damp room, as they called it, which is Frank's room. And once this relationship with Frank starts to grow, <laughs> she she persuades Larry that she doesn't want, she keeps trying to tell him like, oh, that room is too damp. Like, I don't want, I think there's mold in there. We shouldn't put our room in there. But he keeps insisting, like saying they'll have workers come in and they'll get it all cleaned up and it'll be beautiful. It's the biggest room. It has the most light, da, 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 da. So in the book, it's meant that she she can't risk him wanting to renovate that room like when right. he, she's not there or something. So she puts it in this, yeah, like weirdly spare room where they've chucked a bunch of the stuff from the house that they don't want to keep, but they whereas, haven't thrown away yet. Whereas here it just doesn't work as well because you have one room no, no one goes in and the other room with lots of boxes. So presumably yeah. people go in there. Yeah. Yeah. Very but I guess like if you have a dead body or something like that, then you want to hide it amongst other things. Like you don't want to just leave it open on a floor. Like if somebody was to open that yeah, door, but- you'd see it right away. Yeah, but also by that logic, Frank is in that room. He doesn't yeah. like disappear into the walls or anything. He so just if, sits if in there. Goes, in there goes, they're seeing don't look at me. <laughs> yeah, but if Larry yeah, went in there or Kirsty went in there, they're going to see Frank. So I know. fuck it. Put more bodies in there. Yeah. Yeah. So we then learn that Kirsty's working in a pet store. Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Before you go there, Larry comes home and he asks where she is and she's like, I'm not feeling good or something. He's like, I got. Okay, I got cookies and brandy. Oh no, he comes to the door. He's like, "Want a cookie?" <laughs> yeah. And then she's like, "I don't feel good." He's like, "Well, oh, she's like, oh, could I have a brandy?" He's like, "I'll make it." So I wrote down, "Nice dude, cookies and brandies." And he makes brandy. cookies and brandy. Keeper. <laughs> keeper. And, uh, yeah, it's a keeper. There are these scenes where I'm just like, "Yeah, he's all right." <laughs> I mean, he's a complete yeah. wimpy idiot, but you know, yeah, he's, he's got cookies and brandy. Exactly. Yeah, Kirsty's working at a pet store. We have an incredibly English lady complaining about her bird. Bird, yeah. And then the same homeless guy comes into the store and starts eating locusts slash crickets. I'm not really sure what you call them, whether that's small. they're crickets, yeah. Katie's biggest fear yeah. in life is critic- crickets, pretty much. So how is this for you, <sighs> Katie? Grasshoppers are worse. Well, they're all the same, sort of. You know. No, but I used to have to buy crickets like that because I had a pet tarantula. And I... Literally loved this tarantula so much because I got to feed it crickets because I got to kill crickets via my tarantula. But I used to hate it because the guys would like literally reach in and grab handfuls of these jumping live crickets to put them in the bag or the box or whatever when I purchased them. And that alone would creep me out. So when I saw this guy's hand in there, I was like, oh, my God. And then when he ate them and they're all in his beard and everything. Oh, it was so gross. It was very disturbing. You should have said what Kirsty's reaction is when he reaches in and grabs them. And she just says, give those back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, she should have, I don't know, man. He looks like, if you saw him from the time before, you'd be like, what are you yeah, doing Yeah, what the here? fuck do you and want? And then I would call the police. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He clearly looks like a murderer. But instead, he's there. He eats these. He, he'd like go, he leaves. And then we get a sound of birds again as he's leaving, mm-hmm. repeating with the sound she had before in her dream. And then a boyfriend turns up and he says, what's wrong? She's like, nothing. It's cool, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What the f- There's a fucking She's, crazy devil. There's really no Jesus point boy. for the boyfriend throughout this entire film. No, we really, which, I, can't, which I kind of like. I kind of like he's that he's such actually such a wash character. Because otherwise, like people would moan, oh, the boyfriend comes in and saves her at the end of the day. He doesn't. He comes oh, in and he's kind no, of. No, he's in the way. He is very much in the way throughout this film. So Julia's bringing back another English idiot. Frank <laughs> now has graduated to a shirt. 
with blood seeping through it, which I kind of like. It's completely stupid and pointless because blood seeping through it, but it's kind of horrible. Like I just keep thinking about the feeling of cloth touching, you know, like, like your body with no skin. You know, yeah. But he doesn't seem to be healing much, no matter how many guys she's bringing back for him. Also, I just want to note that she has a thing for bald guys yes. in weird underwear. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> English guys in the 80s, it's I what think. what you can get. <laughs> yeah, bald guys in weird underwears. And then, you know what? Brandy and cookies after her kills. <laughs> she, has a, she has a glass of brandy after. <laughs> Does she really? I didn't notice that. Yeah. Awesome. So this is the point where Frank finally shows Julia the box and explains what happened. Again, we don't have a name for the box here. Is it named in the book? Yeah, they call it Pandora's. Le Marchand's whatever. Le Marchand's configuration or yeah. the Le Marchand? Okay. I have it. Yeah, I think that's it. Because it will be called later on and we might start calling it now because just for clarification, it is the Lamont configuration as if you're lamenting something. And it is made by yeah, Le Marchand, who we will definitely get to in a future episode of this podcast series. So he explains her about the box. He says it opens doors, doors to pleasures of heaven or hell, and I didn't care which. We kind of get a reiteration of what happened at the beginning, but we see a bit more to do with the Cenobites about how they give pain and pleasure indivisible. We see Chatterer, Butterball, the female Cenobite, and Pinhead Chumper. again. You have to call him Chatterer, buddy. He is beloved. Chumper. People will be so upset. Chomper. <laughs> that just sounds like the character at Futurama. He's, it's like a cute little Cinnabon guy. <laughs> So she, Julia seems to see this vision. Like when he's talking about what happened, she recoils like she was in it for a second. Maybe by touching I think it's because he, he flashes the box at her and then the gold rays like gave her vision. Right, right. That's what I got. Yeah, that can yeah, happen. You, she's like, you are meant to uh-huh. be able to see things in the box because it, like, oh, okay. it, it like holds those memories in it. Data. Okay. So then he it's says he can't let them. He basically has escaped the Cenobite. So we're kind of learning here for the first time what's really going on. He says he can't let them get him back. And she says, don't worry. They will not find us. So now we got to see with Larry watching a boxing match. He's really into it. (laughs) He's really into it. All right. Yeah. He looks like he needs a Nintendo Labo on his back. (laughs) And he's he's kind of looking at Julia because he's used to the boxing making her sick. She doesn't like violence, but she's fine with it now. Um, And then we got a really long way. A bunch of dudes. We get a really weird long shot of him, though, as he's like leaning back into his chair and he keeps looking at her like, oh, are you upset with me? Was I too into my boxing? <laughs> yeah. She's like, what? It made me the first time Maybe I saw that. this thing. Oh, he does have a violent side. He's going to use that later on. Nope. No. <laughs> nope. You will be severely disappointed if you... Yeah. Or maybe this is to show you the cap of his violence. Like the cap he has boxing. is like fake boxing on the couch. <laughs> like I do a little shadow box. <laughs> a little shadow now. box. Meanwhile, Frank is pounding on the walls upstairs because he's bored. I don't know why. Doesn't seem it's to meant be to pain. be this storm. The storm is meant to like have roused him or something. Uh, oh, really? I did yeah. not get that. Because it's like thundering and lightning and stuff outside. Because he's like crossing back and forth across the room. He's all like unnerved and right. unsettled. Yeah, I didn't get that. Yeah, I thought he was just making noise. And then they're like, oh, it's a storm. Uh, well, yeah, in, the bu- in the book, he's meant to have... Because like the, the curtains were nailed to the windows. And so he the noise is caused from him ripping the curtains off of the windows because he really wants to see the storm. Like he wants to be a part of the outside world because okay. he's missed it for so okay. long. I like that, but I don't get yeah. it from the scene. No. 
He's nailing. All I get is he's nailing rats to the walls, which I don't yeah. really know why. Yeah. Hate them uh, rats. I was, I was like, what is, why don't you drink the blood from the rats? Yeah. yeah. Turn into a big rat boy. You could turn into Splinter. It's the beginning <gasps> of the turtles. Yeah. Oh my God. This is actually this, the turtles origin story. <laughs> Larry goes to investigate, but Julia tries to distract him by having sexy time. Basically. <laughs> yeah. This scene is hilarious because he's whispering all the things that they're doing. Like he's narrating. He's like, yeah, let's move here. You're moving. <laughs> now I'm going to kiss your neck. And I was like, what the heck? Yeah. But Fra- Frank has left yeah, the attic and he's actually in the bedroom with them. And he looks like he's going to kill Larry. He's walking up behind him with a knife. And Julia's like reacting to it, telling Frank not to do it. And Larry misconstrues her as saying that now she doesn't want to have sex with him. Um, and instead, Frank just slices a rat in half and then hides in a cupboard, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then we get this great scene of Larry just going, I don't know what the hell's going on with you. One second, you're all <laughs> One over second, me. One second, you're all over me. <laughs> Which is fair yeah, enough. He's just so bummed out. <laughs> well, yeah. Can you imagine? Sure. I know. Try to read he's what like, I, I told you what yeah. I was going to do, and now we're not going to do he's it. He's like, <laughs> I was narrating. I was telling you the play-by-play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me get Larry and Kirsty. They're talking over a Chinese dinner to go. He wants her to go and check on Julia in the daytime because he's at work and he's worried about Julia and check she's all right, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Frank is trying to convince Julia to let him kill Larry, but she says, no, she's not going to do it. So instead, she brings home yet another guy, another very unattractive guy. Oh, <laughs> also, they're not just getting dinner. He's getting love advice from his daughter. That's yeah. true. Which is- Who obviously yeah. does not like Julia. Like, we get that from yeah. the very first scene. I don't get that with this. I really so, don't. I remembered it being that way. Watching it this time, I was like, I don't, I don't get the animosity between them that I thought was there for the entire movie. It only really happens towards the end. Well, from this point onwards, when she sees, oh, Julia. Well, because he tells her at the beginning when she first comes into the house, he's like, be nice, you know, as yeah. though their relationship is not great. Yeah, no, completely. But I don't. But she always is nice. Like, Kirsty's just nice. Yeah. Come throughout this entire film yeah. up until right. this point, I find. It's jealous. Yeah, she was like, "You're telling me you're about to have sexy time <laughs> with her and not my me, boyfriend your own sleeps daughter. on the floor." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Kirsty turns up at the same time that Julia is bringing home another guy for Frank. So she creeps in the house, goes upstairs, and finds Frank, who does the of course. That's another bald guy. Yeah, <laughs> another bald guy. Uh, we get the "come to daddy" line again from Frank as he's establishing that as his trademark. And he tells her that how she's grown and she's beautiful and her daddy must be proud of oh. her. Oh, you're skipping to Kirsty. Yeah, that's what I'm saying with Kirsty. Oh. Yeah. Well, Kirsty's coming also, and up the you, stairs. Go you oh. miss that that dude. She hits him on the head and he doesn't even go down. Like most people, if you're smashed in the head with a hammer, you're down. This guy took two hits and he wasn't even down. He's like, ah, no. <laughs> no, what are you doing to me? Stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, said, the nerdiest guy is the strongest guy. Is what I've learned in this movie. <laughs> That's the lesson. Because <laughs> the guy had glasses, was balding. He didn't really have much going for him. I felt really bad for him, actually. Well, we don't get to. He was like one of the nicer ones. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Murder. He's like, oh, I usually don't do. I've just just been lonely. And you're like, oh, poor dude. But well, I, he yeah, was the- in the book. He's meant to try to get away. Like he regrets going. Like he feels bad because he has a wife, and he like shows her pictures of his kids. And so she's like 
sort of regretting bringing him, but she also doesn't want to do this anymore. So she's like, I, ha- I just have to get this last one done, basically. And he's, he, yeah. so he pleads for his life and he's way messier. Like he almost gets out. It, you know, it's all gone downhill at this point. Yeah. Oh boy. For everyone um, so yeah. but Frank. He's just sitting by waiting for dinner. Yeah. Frank's got it made. <laughs> he just stays with Frank. Eats. Don't look at me. So yeah, Kirsty's upstairs. She does a come to daddy line in her, tells her she's growing to beautiful, blah, blah, blah. She sends like get away from her or shield. And I do like this delivery when he goes, What do you do? What can you do? Um and then he says, Some things have to be endured, and that's what makes the pleasures so sweet. Yeah, I like that line a lot. So, but Kirsty puts her fist through his stomach. This is the bit that was cut yeah. because it was too grotesque yeah. to begin with. And then she awesome. grabbles away. Yeah, it's a cool little touch. And then she grabs the box to throw at him and he panics and she realizes, oh, this is important. So she throws it out the window. I just like how many times she goes, you want it? You want this? Do you want this? <laughs> like, uh, like, yeah, yes. I thought I made it clear when I, I said, said yeah. give me the box. Give it to me. That's what I said. Yeah. I thought she was going to like, punch it into his stomach that would have been super gnarly well in the book she hits him over the head with it like three times and then she and then he realizes what she's hit him with basically yeah also if she punched him in the stomach her hand would have been burnt out by that stomach acid for (laughs) sure you think he's like fully anatomically working at this point yeah he might not be developing stomach acid yet i don't know Um, (laughs) it would yeah i just was like Ugh. you're worried about it <laughs> yeah people will get infections very easily in these movies oh, for sure. just i mean being he, in that room yeah yeah you, you breathing in black mold for sure exactly so yeah now's a bit where she's running down the street with the box by a fence for the most part it keeps going yeah and then she begins to get really faint after passing two nuns which again Ooh, lots of religious imagery mean face yeah i'm not i'm not sure what the what the point is of it? I'm not sure if there's commentary or if Clive Barker's just enjoying throwing in religious things here to, right. to counteract. But and then she faints on the street and wakes up in a hospital. And this is where, for me, it really feels like a Nightmare on Elm Street scene because we get the doctors who don't let her make a phone call. They then leave the box in her room to help jog her memory about what happened. Yeah. They have a TV on with just like flowers unfurling on it. And then they lock her in the room and don't let her out. Deflowering. <laughs> it's about deflowering, man. Deflowering. Yeah, so then she decides, and maybe you can tell me why. I don't know why. She decides to try and open the box and she looks really happy about it. She sits yeah, down on her bed. Like all little eager. red semen drawings that are like coming out. Yeah. <laughs> they look like little red semen sprites. And they're like, wee. I was like, wow. Oh. This is, she's in a white gown. There's flowers blooming on the thing. There's little semen boxes. What is happening? Oh now I can never see this the same way. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, you Jessica. Really remember. Yeah, but as soon as she touches it, the TV, which is showing images of flowers, begins the static. And then, yeah, like most people in this movie, opens the box immediately. No problems. Well, she's yep. meant to be like obsessed with it. Like she looks at it because she wants to know why he wanted it so badly. And then she's, yeah, she holds it up to a light. And starts to see, like, the fragments and the puzzle tree of it. And so she, like, it's meant to be hours it takes her to get it open. And she stops at one point because she hears the bells ringing. So she gets out of bed to go look where the bells could be coming from. And then, like, becomes refocused on this box. And then opens it on what, you know. And then the rest progresses, essentially. 
Well, yeah, they're definitely playing in this movie and in the future movies, arguably, with the box chooses who it wants to be opened by, and then it just kind of right. spreads its legs. Well, basically. that's what I took. <laughs> that's like, what I took on. for yeah. the like electric sparky sperm, as Justin has called it. Like it, it only does that to the people who touch it, who it wants to who touch it. Wants. it. Yep. So she does open it, uh, a door, well, the wall kind of splits and shows this corridor. There's a baby screaming again. She goes wandering down it for quite a while um, and then comes across a creature. Now, this is where I remember being a teenager wow. and I was like, what the fuck is going on here? You got like I a real creepy. huge prosthetic, strange creature that's very pink. Sausage. It's got like Sausage. arms on its head Fair. and arms underneath it. It starts chasing her back through this long, dreamlike, again, Nightmare on Elm Street sort of style corridor to try and get back to the hospital room. Now, you could see it before, but now that you're watching it in Blu-ray, as a, or your HD, as I presume all of us did, you can really see the wheels and the rig of the people pushing behind this thing a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, totally. Also, when she first walks in, you can see that it's a backdrop of like an endless corridor. Yeah, right. a big painting. Or, oh, yeah. You can literally, like, that's a pink. there's a whole shot where you can literally, there's bits where you can see glimpses and silhouette, but there's a literal shot where you could just see the rig Silly behind wheels. it, the wheels, the people running yeah. to push it. Yeah. Which is a strange one. So, so, sorry, I was reading that this, this thing is meant to be the engineer. This is the engineer. Yeah. Oh, it's so weird. Which I've only learned in prep for this podcast. So I've seen this whole series a number of times. The engineer is going to pop up again in future stuff. I always was a bit confused about what the engineer was meant to be. And as someone who'd only watched the films, I presume the engineer was just Pinhead, basically. Yeah. Uh, but no, this is the engineer. Wow. So the engineer, there's a whole thing you can look up about it. Uh, there's a whole history. But basically, it's the creature. There are meant to be many engineers in hell or in this space and it's something that's sought to have once been human millions of years ago before the time of the Cenobites and it's, so it's older than the Cenobites essentially there's not lots of information about it but we'll get into them later on as we go through the series a bit more about the engineers but here for me the first time I watched this movie I'm like this is just a dumb monster that they throw in to have a dumb monster yeah. face like it doesn't have it doesn't seem to fit for me with the Cenobites and the world that they're creating. So yeah, for me, like she gets back into the hospital, the, the door closes. We have, for me, one of the least effective scenes in a movie, followed by my favorite scene in the movie. When she's back in the hospital room, essentially we go through the box kind of opening again, like a second stage of it. The door closes. TV static has this cool sound that's really embedded in me because I used to rewatch the scene over and over and over again when I was young. Uh, we get blood in the IV drip that then explodes, light bulbs explode, and then the Cenobites appear one by one. And Chatterer, who's the first one, walks over to her, Chopper. puts his fingers in her mouth. and it's, With his leather oh, finger. It's fucking like, intrusive. Glove. It's so gross. I was like, wow. It just, ugh, and he's like, your hands are clean. It's like, I've got to say, man, she does, she does scared really well in this scene. She's got a great performance. He's just a great presence. She was probably scared, like, dude, your hand looks so gross. All right, here we go. <laughs> Did you clean your fingernails? Because this is a... Uh... Yeah. So, yeah, the the production company, the studio, New World, they wanted stuntmen to play the Cenobites uh, to save on the production costs. But Clive Barker really fought to have actors because he said their body language is going to be so important because he needs to convey personality for each of them. Um, and I think it really pays off. Like, I think Chadra has got a great physical presence here. Yeah, right. Chumper's the coolest. <laughs> <laughs> and we get Butterball who's licking his lips 
And then for the very first time, we get to hear Pinhead's voice. He hasn't spoken yet. Like, it's so weird. I mean, they're in the movie more than Jason is in Friday the 13th, one. But they're not in this movie that much. We get to hear Pinhead's voice for the first time. It's fucking brilliant. Like, I don't know, like, between Doug Bradley's performance and whatever post-work they do to add something to it. I mean, this is pre-digital times, so you're not going to do the stuff you could do now, you know, in post-production. But these lines, like, what are you? Well, we're explorers in the verge of regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. It's ah, He just, his delivery is so fucking great. And apparently the direction for Clive Barker was him. He was meant to be, like, uh, what was it? It was meant to be a surgeon who's about to, who's enjoying the surgery that he does. But he's also meant to be the, like, general at the hospital who has to make sure everything keeps to schedule. So, like, he enjoys his work, but he's also got to, like, tick the boxes to make sure everything's running how it's meant to be running essentially wow interesting and he totally does that like he just feels so powerful in this scene you got good use of dry ice great use use of the music and the bell ringing yeah he his presence was just like you're like whoa this is the the head honcho for sure well yeah that's what i'm even though you're saying you were saying that they weren't like they were all equals but he definitely seems like yeah. His shit was the most together, and he was the guy that wrangled everything. But that's what I'm interested in, because for me, it's such a staple. It's like, it's Pinhead. I've loved him since I was 17. But for you guys, does it work now? Like, when you come... I mean, with Jess and you think it does, I feel. Like, when you come to this now new, he still is a good presence as a horror character? Oh, or? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely oh, yeah, totally. has a very authoritative presence to him. They got this weird... like. I don't know if his teeth are dirty or if they got jewels in them or something. Yeah. But yeah. It was really grimy. Yeah, it's cool. Then a female Cenobite tells Kirsty that they can't go to hell, not alone. But then they do. So is that just meant to be a threat? Or is cause that's not they're, a practical thing? They're meant to be they're following waiting. her. Like they're they're yeah. in her wake at that point, because they're not back. Oh, she has, okay. They haven't closed the box yet. Oh, so, okay. So from here on out, the box is just open. Yeah. But they can kind of choose when they come in and out of it. Well, they're yeah, it, they're just in another realm. So, and there's a point in the book that a nurse comes in when the Cenobites are in the room and asks Kirsty if she's okay, and it's just after they've delivered the news that they're taking her to hell. So right. she like sees it as her savior, and then one of the Cenobites is like, "She can't see us. We're not in your world. Like right. we're o- only." We, they said, "We belong to you, and you belong to us." So okay, I like that. I like they're that. only like in her world. There's definitely oh, none cool. of that, like we said from that first chapter even of the book. They turn up to Frank and they really say, we're going to take you and do bad things. Right. And he's like, I want that. And they're like, are you sure? Yeah. He's yeah. like, no, I really do. Yeah. Like, are you really sure? Like they ask him like three times, are you really sure that yeah. you want to come with us? Whereas in the film, it's there's, not, there's no asking. <laughs> they're no. just like, we're taking you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of funny from what you told me about that, that he's just like, yeah, because if you only watched the movie and you hear that, you're like, why would you say yeah? Those dudes show up looking like that. Why would you keep saying yeah? They're like, are you are you really sure, Matt? I do feel Have in you the seen book, us? though, they are more sexual. Like, I do feel there's more sensuality to the Cenobites in the book. I mean, no, they're meant to be way uglier. So sexy. Oh, really? Yeah, they said in the book that there's like no part of them that isn't either sewn or scarred and... Like most of them, you can't even see that they have eyes or that they only have like one eye. They're meant to be these like disgusting crawling creatures who are like indistinguishable as male or female. And they actually scare him when he first, when he first kind of glimpses into the world, he, 
he like freaks out and he has this moment where he's like, what have I done? But then the Cenobites start to show up and he sees, he like sees past them to this. He forgets how ugly they are. He forgets this like dark world that he's seen. And he, he only is focused on what these pleasures are that they can offer him. Right. Right. He doesn't really associate in his head that is like, these are the people who will be giving you said pleasure. And that's probably not going to go well. Which is interesting. Like, I do get that a bit from the others, but with Pinhead, for sure, he's very polite. And that's what I always liked about right. him. He's like got etiquette to him, which makes you yeah. feel like he's, he's, he's a, a proper British man. He and he's, very, he's very polite in this scene with Kirsty as well, because she's, she's like, I opened it on accident. And he, and he says something to the effect of, many others have before you that is not our problem like it is unfortunate but it is not our fault yeah you know yeah. we still have to take you basically well yeah and then he has these great like, lines he, like it's it's it costs a lot of yeah gas to get here, yeah. so we gotta make it worth it yeah. someone's gotta pay for the gas tab yeah but then he's got some great lines like oh no tears please it's a waste of good suffering yeah it's and so then good. she asks him if you've done this before and he says just many many times and just the way he says that just feels so old and ancient and like chilling Fortunately, no spoilers, but some of the sequels might change some of this lore a little bit. But right now, I'm really enjoying these moments. Kirsty then tells them that Frank Cotton escaped them and says that she can get him back for them if, if they let her go, which Pinhead definitely seems the most interested in for pride reasons or whatever it is. But if, they, if she fucks them over, basically, he says, we'll tear your soul apart. And we get a great shot. And the shot. book he even says, maybe we won't tear your soul apart. So there's like this <laughs> feel of... Even if you do all these things right, maybe there's still a chance that we'll rip you apart. And it's so fun. I'm just like, what? Right. Uh, yeah, it's a great shot, though. Bell chimes, screen goes white, and you're like, fucking hell. All right. You know you're at the beginning of something new in the horror sort of franchises. But then I've forgotten all about it, because that's the thing for me. I'm like, I'm in. This is Kirsty. This is Pinhead. These cool scenes with feathers. Like, I'm loving all this stuff. And I've almost forgotten, we have to cut back to Julia, old hairdo, who's talking with Frank about what if Kirsty tells the Cenobites about them. Um, so Julia decides that she's going to sacrifice Larry because he's just got home and they're going to bring him upstairs and allow that to happen. Well, because uh, Frank says he needs a skin. Yeah. And it's like, he's not how, can run away. why couldn't you have gotten a skin from like any of the three people I've brought you so far. Well, no, but it's the last. I, I always took that as he needs one last person. Like he's like finally built to everything one. but the skin. Yeah. So he I needs one more person. I don't know why you person. couldn't have like flayed one of the other ones and then like suck their blood out. Well, that's why it's weird and we'll get to it in a second. But I don't see it as literally being I need the skin. Frank's an idiot. He's not really a genius. No, no. that's true. <laughs> because he's not like taking those people and then taking their veins and putting them on him. He just absorbs right. them and then becomes more him. So this whole time, I feel like he's going to become Frank, and then he doesn't. Right. So I am kind of confused with what happens next. In the book, he says, I need a skin, then maybe we can go dancing together. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like, think what? that's some kind of euphemism. <laughs> Sounds like something he'd do. <laughs> Meanwhile, Kirsty's boyfriend, who is now dressed in an unbelievably colorful 80s t uh, shirt, very, very button-up shirt, has found Kirsty gone from the hospital, so he decides to head to her father's house. We see Kirsty's father... But it's clearly Frank, right? None of us were conned by this at any point. Also, uh, question. How did they get a hold of him? And also... The boyfriend. Why didn't they call her father? Yeah, well, to be fair, the phone does ring at the house. Because Julia says, oh, that's probably Kirsty now. So I'm uh, guessing Kirsty rang there and then rings 
Maybe no, no, no. I'm talking about like when she was missing or whatever. Like you know, when she was picked up, they co- would have called you know like her immediate family. Not but if she didn't have a number. Or how did the thing? I feel like maybe she yeah. rang the boyfriend. I don't know. I don't know. Boyfriend was just like maybe he's just a super stocky boyfriend. He's, like, oh, <laughs> he's always following. Her get picked up. <laughs> yeah. But the boyfriend gets to the hospital after she's gone. That's what we're saying. Yeah. That's what we're saying. So who know, told him weird. to go there? But yeah, anyway, we're, we're, none of us are faithful, but as we know, it's Frank, right? Dressed up as Larry. Now, is he literally wearing Larry's skin? Or can he choose to become the last person that he kind of absorbed? Or like, what's the No, deal he's here? totally got his skin on because you can see like the blood mark up by his hairline. And it- A little goo. And then he like comes down the stairs, like flexing his hand and it makes this like weird sound as though he's fitting into it. So he if does, he like, absorbed, all these motions of like settling it on his face. So theoretically, if he absorbed more victims, would he become Frank with skin and all and hair? Like if this is just it's too early, so he's just going to wear someone's just, skin. I think he would have gotten someone else's skin. Like he would look like that other person. But you, what? So you think the last person he absorbs, he just becomes that person? But here he hasn't done that. I think he could. I think he could have became Frank, but he's just like nah. Effort. But you don't have Frank's be skin because the Cenobites have Frank's skin. No, but I don't. Again, he's been killing these people. He's absorbing them, and they're f- they're building him like just the right. blood falling on the floor. Craden, he's not literally taking bits of their bodies parts and putting them in him. So, like, he's becoming himself, it's like regenerating more and more. Yeah, he's using right. their blood to become him again. So, I presume that if he kept on doing that, he would eventually just become Frank. But because they need to get out a bit too early, he's like, well, fuck it. I'll just take someone's skin right now and put it on. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Or maybe he felt like he couldn't become Frank again because then he would be obvious to the Cenobites. Like maybe it was more he just wanted to be more in disguise. Okay. Okay. But either way, we're feeling like he's stopping the process to wear. He's literally wearing the skin here. Yeah, I feel like he's panicking and he needs to like get out. But he can't okay. unless he has skin on. That was always obviously. confusing to me when I was yeah. When I was and I, I also wrote down that Larry is a badass actor. Yeah, he's, he's good. He's playing a completely different like side where you're like, wow, you're a badass now, dude. He and is creepy. Good, yeah, yeah. Then they have sexy time, which must be weird for her because it's not with someone who looks like Frank. It's with someone who looks like a husband. But I guess is better. Well, and you'd like assume energy? that things were like not really tight and like <laughs> holding together well yeah and did he like, like so did he weird. like get penis skin and put it over yeah. his penis? like what's <laughs> and he took his own brother's penis yeah. and then so what if weird. his penis isn't the same size as his brother's penis skin <laughs> i know <laughs> well, no, there's a lot of skin there are a lot of problems going on here kirsty gets back to the house luckily after they've had sex and then frank slash larry tells her that it's all okay even though he's got blood all over his hair and face <laughs> Yeah, it's like goo too. Yeah. It's like the flesh. Yeah, like he had to, he like he cut the top of the head open and then he slid into it and he just sealed the top. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't seem to notice that. And he says that they've don't worry, they've killed Frank. They had to put him down. So it takes about it takes her. She goes upstairs to see like the skinned body in the attic, and then Pinhead and the Cenobites just rock up again. <laughs> right. They're like, we need whoever did this. Yeah, it's a cool line. No, he delivers it really well. It's like, we want the man who did this. And he does it in this way of yeah. like, this is not cool. <laughs> yeah. this, He's like, we fuck, this. unticked here, man. This is not okay with me. This is our job. I, like I just, do not appreciate it. I like how there's just candles around the body as well immediately as soon as they show up. Like, it's just like, yeah. ceremonious. 
but Kirsty thinks it's her father that's skinned. She's like, no, I'm sorry, not her father's skin, her father who did it. She's like, no, you can't take him. And then we get this terrible scene, I think, and I always hated it, where she comes running down the stairs and Julia stops her for some reason. Yeah. And then she's like, tells her to move and Julia just does this long pause and then sort of shakes her head like, no. No. No, you can't go. And then, yeah. uh, and then she runs. Julia's not playing it cool. Like, no. If she would have just played it normal. It's falling apart. Falling apart. Yeah. But then Frank falls apart because while pretending to be her dad, he does the come to daddy line a couple of times, which... As we know now, signature Frank. Typical. <laughs> so Kirsty suddenly realizes what's happened, which is a lot to put together, I feel. <laughs> and she scratches his face, which tears the skin off from the top, which, yeah, I guess is definitely testament to he's not fully anything underneath. He's still bits. So he pulls out his little stabby blade, but she moves. And I've got down accidentally question mark kills Julia because he certainly doesn't seem to give a shit. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's meant to be an accident, but he's also not sad that she's he's been stabbed. He was going to do it at some point anyway. He's basically yeah. using her. And I think he also steals her soul or blood. Well, he does the same thing. She- he puts his fingers into her to suck her blood or whatever. So this is the point where I'm thinking, oh, now he's going to become Frank, pull off that skin and just be Frank Frank. But instead, he's still no more healed. Like even, the, you know, like nothing like I expected maybe under the rips in his fake skin to see real skin suddenly underneath it but no. yeah or like the the skin that she's slashed in his face will like regenerate yeah, yeah. yeah. something there's a, it's really cool in the book because it's meant to be like i couldn't the, he writes action he doesn't write action as well as he writes setup but in it he, she, like what's her face julia is holding kirsty like from she's standing up the stairs holding kirsty by the hair like exposing her neck to Frank so Frank can slit her throat and somehow Kirsty like throws Julia off balance pulls her in front of the blade she gets stabbed and she said there's no remorse but that Frank like drops Julia to chase after Kirsty and then when he comes back to Julia he like picks her up as if to kiss her but there's something evil in him that Julia senses so she screams and like freaks out and he mm. f- he goes to kiss her, but he like feeds on her face, essentially. Which oh, that's pretty cool. I was like, that Whoa. was really cool. Yeah, but that's nice. cool. Obviously not what happens. Yeah, that's here. pretty dope. We don't get that. No. Um, yeah, we get a lame one. <laughs> instead, we get Kirsty running to hide in the cardboard box attic room where all the bodies have been hiding, which blows my mind because there's no open windows, no ventilation, and it looks so warm it, in there. It would be <laughs> putrid. In yeah. there, like the yeah. smell, you gag when you walk in. Oh, there yeah. are three dead bodies that we know of. And instead, she's hiding yeah. from Frank, and then one of the bodies falls out of the cupboard with like maggots falling out of its mouth. It's pretty, it's horrible, but yeah. she would Those fucking Those are real maggots, too. Oh, yeah. man. Poor they girl. said they had a maggot. They said they had a maggot wrangler and a roach <laughs> wrangler on set. Oh, Jesus. Nice. <laughs> That's just so many maggots. I was like, dude, that, that. It that stench that would stink so badly that that state of decomposition Terrible. it would be you would be vomiting before yep. you even crawled that close to you'd be like oh this smell smell <laughs> and even Frank would walk in there and go no nope, <laughs> not this room fuck this room if you're in here do you do you stay there you're fine yeah but this is also the most cliched horror section of the film the girl running upstairs hiding in a room the guy walking around she finds a dead body like it's very very 
yeah. cliche here and wrote. But these were some of the jump scares that they made him put in. Yeah, I don't like, like this. Like the statue yeah. kind of falling out of the cupboard falling. on her and stuff. Yeah, and you're like, the bodies are in here. Yeah. They're going to yeah. pop out any second. If you haven't got Jason pursuing her, not interested. <laughs> yeah. And then she just waits at the top of the stairs for him to that grab her, basically. That scene was so annoying. Like, she just comes out yeah. and she just, like, cries loudly at the banister. <laughs> Such a setup scene. It was cool in the book because she, from holding her breath and screaming, she actually gets the hiccups while she's in that room. So she's hiding really well in that room and Frank can't find her. And then she starts getting these uncontrollable hiccups, which I thought was like a really great, like that never really happens in horror films that it's yeah, yeah. a physical reaction to what's happening around you, which I thought was great. And instead he's nice like, no, time. just kind of wander out to the banister and have a yep. meltdown. And then a weird sort of reverse thing where he comes out of the attic room and then she ends up backing into the attic room, which is an awkward direction to give. And then, of course, she's realizing that that skinned body in there is her dad and she's all upset about it. And then the music box tune begins. Light starts coming through the walls, just like it did before when the box is opened. And Frank is like, what is this? It's like, you fucking yeah. know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah did you forget like, did they how pull would he not run as soon as that music box music starts just get out of there dude but no he hangs out looking around and then we get these really cool shots of the Cenobites as they're kind of rotating as light is illuminated on them one by one uh, to sort of introduce them properly it's fucking cool and then Chain's going to Frank to pull him back and Pinhead tells Kirsty to go he's like this is not for your eyes as if basically you know, you've lived up to your part of the bargain. You're free to go. And then as she's about to go, Frank is there, who looks like a dad still. Chains all in for his cheeks, for his hands, for his arms, everywhere. Just like lifted up. Fucking great makeup. Looks horrible. And then he gives the line, Jesus wept, licks his lips, and she runs out. And boom. Boom. Whole thing explodes. This bit was edited down. His brain originally like exploded on a wall and stuff. And you might remember this shot. Jested from when we did our horror little festival, private festival we did last year. This was in my little <laughs> collage of shots and everybody yeah. in the room was like, oh, <laughs> didn't like. There was such Did. a cool line in the book for this. It said, then he came unsown. Oh, nice. It's so good. And it just like stands alone out in the paragraph. It's really great. Well, this line in the script, all he was meant to say is fuck you. <laughs> But Andrew Robinson, who's playing Larry, uh, he asked Clive on the day, can I change this to Jesus Wept? And it was never meant to be anything more than just a fuck you. And it's a, now it's one of the most iconic moments in horror cinema, really. Yeah, he, he ad-libbed this one, and then he ad-libbed the, the cat and mouse line. Oh, yeah, no more cat yeah. and mouse shit. Yeah, yeah, that's enough of this cat and mouse shit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking great moment. Love it. So, yeah. Still not entirely understanding all of the religious stuff, if... I don't even know if Clive Barker's thought it all through, but but I like these moments. Yeah. But yeah, so it looks like Kirsty's been left off the hook here, because that's what Pinhead's implying. But then we Is get the female Cenobite. <laughs> You're oh, off very the nice. hook. Look at that. You are on it. The, f- the female Cenobite, though, is walking up the stairs with what looks like what's going to be Candyman's hook from Clive Barker's future work, <laughs> clawing the walls as blood is coming from them, which I really like. But there, she's like, she's chasing Kirsty around the house now. Does this, like, I mean, as far as I can say, Pinhead seemed cool. <laughs> he right. seemed like, you're good. So I'm confused with this. And then Kirsty I finds can... Julia, who's now in a bed, with her face skinned Wait. open with tiny, tiny yeah. little chain, chains. 
she's holding onto the box. So you feel like you've gone into this weird other world now where time doesn't necessarily, isn't relevant, maybe. So Kirsty grabs the box and then Pinhead appears behind her, very, very tall. <laughs> very tall Pinhead. That's and on just, a seesaw. Is it really? They literally had to get like some heavier guys to be on one end of it and then they levitated him above her so that he looked more impressive in front that of her. That is brilliant. It's a physical seesaw that they brought in. So that's why cool. I love that's why I love indie films it's like, and it yeah. looks great it looks great because they said I, they got to the end of it and they had no money for visual effects so that was one that they were like we gotta rig this somehow yeah that's hilarious well he gives one of the best lines which is the we have such sights to show you which is yeah. classic pinhead um, I still don't understand him. okay well why did you tell her to go then <laughs> if, yeah. if you, I think I think what it was was this wasn't for her eyes and she was supposed to leave but she stayed and watched it all. Yeah. And they're like, oh. all right, well, you weren't supposed to watch this, so now you pay the price. Well, and no oh, one's closed the box up yet, so they're still there. Yeah, but they just need so, to take one person. They go there, Frank. I understand. But. Yeah, but she witnessed it all. Now she knows what happens. I think Fair it's that, that woman one, because even when Kirsty was like, I'll bring you Frank, she's like, maybe we don't want Frank now. Yeah. Like, maybe That's it was some... just, she's like, I, I see something I like. <laughs> she saw I'll what she likes and she like you take you home <laughs> I will show you the pleasures of my world now we get for, my realm. for me we get the only bad performance slash sentence from Pinhead in this movie which is when she grabs the box points it at him and then he says no don't do that <laughs> <laughs> uh, she starts to activate it it's like oh no don't don't use the box on us no not the box uh, well he's never had to say that I know before, so he was like what the don't, this is kind of weird to say, but don't do that. <laughs> Please, don't. And Pinhead's the first to go, which proves they were not thinking of him as the main one. He like goes straight away, and then yeah. she basically runs around the house, which is crumbling on her, using the box like a tiny laser gun, shooting centipites. Ew, kablowy. Reversing sort of time. Opening go it. Go back to your Pokeball. Closing it. I don't know how she's doing it. Does she have to go back the amount of steps to its original form from when you open it and if so were there that many amount of steps to that many amount of centibytes to get rid of because she yeah, just seems to constantly seem be closing like each it closure like sent one of them back yeah so is know. it however many times however many m- movements the box has to do to open that's how many centibytes you bring through i'm giving it a lot of benefit of the doubt here i feel it's just use the box to shooty shooty <laughs> I don't Basically. think that that's yeah. what they initially intended, but I think that they were like, this makes for a great ending that like she has to send them back one by one. She has to solve the puzzle yeah. to send them yeah. back. But it should just be you solve the puzzle, they all go back, you know? Right. Yeah. But no. One reset button. Got to do it one by one. And don't worry though, because then we get early 80s shirt boy turns up to try and help her out. <laughs> to Not get in use. the way. <laughs> yeah, he literally gets in the way. We have a, Almost dies too. We have a cool shot of the chatterer under a plastic sheet here for no reason. Chomper. I love yeah, that. Was, it was like a was veil. Pretty. It was like a wedding veil. Oh yeah, which well, I it was so pretty. Because in the book, it like Chomper keeps coming pretty. back to the wedding thing, and okay. the way that Julia actually dies in that is Kirsty comes running down the stairs and she hears Julia calling her name because she's about to run out the door. So she assumes Julia wants her to take her with her. She turns around and Julia has somehow put on her wedding dress. And is sitting there in the corner, like slumped there. And she's speaking not out of a head on her shoulders, but she's been beheaded. And she's holding her own head in her lap. And her head oh, is wow. speaking to Kirsty. And it was just like, 
I thought that was like, they did so much with Julia in the book that they didn't do in the film that it would have made her character so much more interesting. Right, right. Yeah, no, this is definitely just more, you know, we need a staple horror action kind of ending to the point where then they finally do open the front door and then the engineer, as we now know it is, reappears again, the big old pink monster and starts fighting them and... her boyfriend throws a milk bottle at it and then we get this fantastic shot of its rubbery hand just punching him in the face (laughs) (laughs) seriously so good so funny but then kirsty gets the box and uses it on it as well and well as she picks it up and is about to use it he goes to like reach to do it she slaps his hands away (laughs) i love how he's like oh i'll do it for you i was like what are you you wandered into a house that's falling down filled with things you cannot even begin to understand and you're like here i'll do that for you it's not a fucking pickle jar bro like it's (laughs) it's a box that you don't understand at all he's like uh uh, i'll save the day yeah Yeah. i'll save you (laughs) I wore my good shirt today. I can handle it. This goes out to all the people who are constantly moaning about horror films just being terrible for women. It's like, they have these great roles where they really just like women know what they're doing in these movies. Not all the women, but at least your final girl. And Kirsty definitely is our final girl as they leave the house. And yeah, then the whole, like it kind of shuts behind them as if the house is haunted in a sort of weird way, but in a finality. It's a British house. And then they head to a part of the city where bonfires are everywhere. I guess it's like the homeless part of the city. Yeah, it's like a fire ritual. They burn yeah. a chair, a whole chair. Yeah, yeah there's one chair just on fire. And then they're trying to burn the box, but nothing's happening. And then we see the homeless. Which also, the box looks like it's made out of metal. What the fuck? Well, the metal. It doesn't look wooden at all. But our metal it looks like it's just metal, like different types of metal and gold. Well, we clearly see at the beginning, like, there's wood underneath and then, yeah, metal bits around it. But, yeah, in this final shot, it's definitely just a big lump of metal to stop it from yeah. burning in the fire. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, this just looks metal. What are you... <laughs> Bury it. Just throw it in lava. Throw it in lava. <laughs> Go to Hawaii. Throw it in lava. All right, Hawaii boy. We don't have volcanoes on tap, right? English people. <laughs> Not much access. But then that homeless guy... Turns up again, Mr. Derelict, and walks into the fire, grabs yeah, <laughs> grabs the box, and then, in the blink of an eye, turns into a skeleton dragon and flies off into the sky. We zoom back out as if, which uh, loops us back into the box again, much like the shot at the beginning of the movie with the titles. And now we have a new person who sits sitting opposite the same shadowy oriental man, and we hear birds' wings flutter, and cue credits as the yeah. exchange also, of the box happens once again. I was always confused with that. Is is it a Chinese guy somewhere in the Middle East? Because that's kind of what I got. Well, yes, Cause it was, maybe. Because if you look at the people in the background, you're like, okay, what the fuck? So let's, yeah. all right, let's talk. There's a few little things to tidy up before we get into our opinions. Because what's interesting with this is, like quite often you can tell where we're going i don't know yet how much you guys actually enjoyed this movie and if you're going to recommend it what you want from another one but let's start with this homeless guy i want to know what is your interpretation of this dude because <laughs> i watched this film many many times and i've never really understood what his purpose was now i've done some reading up to get information from other sources i understand what he is I still don't know if I'd necessarily understand what he's doing in this movie and why he does what he's doing. Justin, what is what is this guy? 
in your opinion? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what is the deal with the homeless dude? Yeah, I don't... I don't know, man. He looks like maybe he's works with the... It's just like... I'm trying to figure out. So, the guy who sells it, the Chinese guy, is the... You know, the, the initial dude is like, I'm the gateway between these two type of worlds. I sell this to those people. And then the Jesus man is the spirit that just kind of has one job to like look over the box. And when the owner finally dies, he just takes it back. So that's what I kind of got him as like, oh, who's, which I don't know why you're, he would follow the girl. You're kind of halfway there or most of the way there. Katie, what are you feeling? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It was kind of a mix of that and then this feeling that he's even a darker demon than any of the things that we've seen thus far because he doesn't abide by the rules of the puzzle box because the Cenobites are only allowed out when the box has been opened. And obviously this guy is very physically present in the world, regardless of the status of the box. But then, yeah, the his transformation at the end was really confusing to me. That was not the form that I was expecting him to take, although I thought it was a really cool scene of him kind of like burning and purifying into this his real form. But I, I was thrown by him through most of the film. I would forget that he existed, and then he would kind of pop up back up again. And then I was like, oh, yeah, who is this guy? And I would continuously be on that roller coaster throughout. He's not mentioned in the book at all. So, did you think at any point when you were watching the film, before you knew it was the other thing, did you think you might be an engineer or something like that? Or? I Well, even when reading the book, I thought the engineer was Pinhead. And right. that's just from my erroneous view of what Hellraiser is, because I'm coming in yeah. completely new. So I was like, oh, he's the main person, because I didn't know any of the backstory. Because he's definitely not in the book, though, for sure. Because you have that description of Pinhead, and then they right. say the engineer's not there yet. So right. So, yeah, you're, you are mostly right, both of you, in that this is a guardian of the puzzle box. Now, this is really explained mostly from the Hellraiser comics, uh, which were laid out by Epic, which explain the origin of what is known as the puzzle guardian. So there is more of these because there are meant to be more puzzles that lead to hell. The Lament configuration is just one of them. So Le Marchand created one of the puzzles that yeah, allows a doorway to open to hell. There are other ones, and for each one... There is meant to be a puzzle guardian who basically on earth chaperones the box or whatever it is, whatever item it is. So the story Mazes of the Mind in the fifth issue of Clive Barker's Hellraiser states that puzzle guardians are created by the Cenobite Orno who tampers with the mind of a denizen of hell who is referred to as raw material and then imbues them with some of his, some of his own seed before sending them to earth to have sex with a woman. After impregnating a woman who will die during childbirth, the raw material then commits suicide. When the child of the raw material reaches the age of 16, Orna reveals their destiny to them, giving them the puzzle that they will then guard. So she's technically, I don't know. So Jesus guy, as you call him in this, that's what he is technically. The dragon thing is meant to be his true form, which doesn't make sense to me in terms of He's the child, so clearly he's meant to be more human. But essentially, it's meant to be guarding the puzzle and continuing it to go on. So what I never got from this ever is the Oriental merchant at the beginning and the end is meant to be the guardian. He is meant to be the one who's basically passing it on to the people who deserve it or need it to keep. Oh, so the creature is like his pawn that retrieves it for him. Well, no, he is that 
essentially. Like they're the same. So the dragon creature, the Jesus creature, and the Chinese man are all the same. They're all the guardian, apparently. What? This is some M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, I don't see that as there. That's the thing. Like, I don't think that's anywhere in this yeah. movie. You have to, like, look at this outsourced material to get that information, which for me means you kind of fail in telling that part of your story. Yeah, but- yeah exactly. Did you like the movie? Well, buy the Decipher book here to go with the movie <laughs> so you can understand it. But that's my thing is kind of like, what, why his relationship with Kirsty then? You know, he seems to be following her before she even has the box. So. Well, that's what I was wondering because in the in the book, the engineer, as she's leaving the house at the end, the engineer, or it's like a person on the street because she's so obviously like, what the fuck just happened to me? She's kind of wandering down the street and she gets bumped into by this person. And it's only when she looks behind her, she sees it's the engineer walking away from her and she looks down and he's handed her back the puzzle box and she takes it as like i am the keeper of it and so that i feel like fits more into that lore of because she would have been in the film at least i mean you could fib and say she's 16 or whatever so it's like maybe they're trying to say her mother died in childbirth and she's meant to be the guardian and but that doesn't match up with the ending of the film no so, I'll be honest, I'd be happier just seeing the guy walk into that fire, pick it up and walk away again. Right. Um, and yeah. then going into that loop again. For me, it's just, I don't need to see this whole dragon thing. That's confusing to me. Yeah. I think they just added it to be like, look, if we can make a cool effect. Can they though? <laughs> <laughs> they do say here, there's a quote from Clyde Barker saying, the final effects in the movie at the final end of the movie, which I presume he's talking about that dragon. He said, they aren't great because he explained there was no money left by this stage. So Barker and... His only quote of this other person is, a Greek guy animated these scenes by hand over a single weekend. And he thinks that it turned out very good considering the amount of alcohol that they both consumed throughout <laughs> that weekend. They uh, said which, the effects guy who made that pterodactyl thing, they paid him like 700 pounds to make that. Wow. And that's it. Wow. And then the rest they had to do on their own. Yeah, I mean, it does look great if it's just the two of them over a weekend drunk. <laughs> doing yeah. It. But, yeah. But I still think it would look better without it, to be honest. It was a thing that even the first time I watched it, I was yeah. like, oh, this is tacky and stupid. Why <laughs> Why are you doing this? Okay, I want to give a couple of last little facts and then we can say our feelings. Doug Bradley's makeup took six hours to apply every time he had to dress up as Pinhead. Luckily, didn't have to do it that much. Claire Higgins, who played Julia, she hates horror movies so much that she says she's never made it past the first 10 minutes of the film. So she's never even seen it. <laughs> and one of my favorite little tidbits here is during the post-production party, Doug Bradley was really dismayed because he was ignored by all the members of the crew. And it wasn't until quite later on that he realized that none of them had ever seen him with, without his makeup on. So none of them realized it was <laughs> Pinhead. <laughs> and he just sat there at the party and no one talked to him and he was all depressed about it. <laughs> Which I love. Uh, a final little thing, I guess, is also we've been quite we've been recommending the Christopher Young score to this. There was original score to this, which was not Christopher Young. It was an industrial band called Coil, who I have sadly heard some of their songs before, uh, who Clive Barker was a big fan for. But the studio, they actually recorded an entire thing for this, nine songs. Uh, but the studio decided to rescore using a house band that would not have to be paid royalties. But you can find the Coil original soundtrack on a compilation CD called Unnatural History 2, Smiling in the Face of Perversity. 
And also on the that, unreleased uh, rolls off so easily. It does, doesn't it? Also on the unreleased themes for Hellraiser, but both of those are actually pretty hard to get hold of nowadays. They're both rarities. Um, but I would be interested to see how this film was with a, like a rock band score, because I fucking love the score in this film. I think it makes yeah, between that and Doug Bradley's performance, it gives a nobility to everything. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is cool. I also read that the girl who played Kirsty that she was very rarely on the set with the Cenobites because they really didn't have the budget. So she right. said, most of my work, if you notice, we're never on the same side of the camera. We are always opposite each other. So most of my work with the Cenobites was done to a piece of masking tape, <laughs> which has got to be weird. Like she does really good reactions, if you think about it, she for does. her not having seen them. Like I said, there are people who really, really hate her. They call her, her along with her and, oh, Jesus, I've forgotten her name now. Nancy from... God, Nightmare on Elm Street, Heather Langenkamp. Oh, right. Um, a lot of people really don't like either of them, and I think they're both great. And I think Ashley Lawrence is arguably, like, I think she's fantastic in this for the most part. Yeah, she she's one of the best parts of this film. Yeah. All right, guys. So what I want to know, first of all, is how you both feel about your first entry into this. If, you're, <laughs> if you've been left excited for the rest of this franchise, or if you're ready to quit on me already. And then we're going to come around again, and I want to know what you what you want for the next one. But we'll get to that in a second. So... Uh, Katie Watson, after reading the book, liking the book, how was this first movie for you? I would definitely say I'm one of those annoying people who's like, the book was better. I hate those people. But yeah, I think that it is, It's I wouldn't say easier, but it is easier to write a scene with extravagant things happening in it rather than trying to get a budget together for a film, especially in the late 80s. So now, having spoken about it at length, I think my biggest disappointment in this film was the lead, Julia. She really, it, she just didn't capture what I needed from her character. And it really tarnished the beginning of this film for me. I even remember turning to you, Alan, being like, are these the people that we're with? Because I just, they were so far flung from what I had envisioned when I read the book. And then there were like little nods and touches that I really loved and like I said Clive Barker is he's a really good author and this kind of led me to be like I would actually you know peruse some of his lengthier things and see if they're as well written because I think his how he approached this it's pretty brilliant I mean just the the tone and the themes and everything that he's brought into this it's extremely well weaved some of the lore might not hold up if you stretch it as far as (laughs) 10 films so I can't even imagine how that goes or how it's extrapolated upon but all in all i i did like this film i thought it was good i i really like pinhead and it just brought depth to the to the darker side of horror films like the monsters got to talk more they they had really profound dialogue you kind of learned more about the origin of some of the the baddies as we call them whereas usually in slasher films especially in the 80s you kind of got exposition in one cutscene as to why those people were mean or bad. And here it's it's their culture, like it's their religion. It's them doing what humans on earth are calling them to do. Like they're only really giving you what you ask of them. So I, I thought it was really cool. It was very different than any other horror films that I've seen. So I would recommend. Yeah, with these ones, with the franchises now, I would say give it like a rough score to help yourself when you get to the wrap up at the end because we change stuff at the end and we reserve the right to completely 
reorder stuff when we get there. I know. I don't because I have no idea how to rate yep. this. Where it's going to go. When I have no idea where it's going after. It gets on IMDb. This gets 7.0, which is a, is a good score for a horror film. Yeah. Higher than any of the Charles Play films on IMDb. Does uh, not which surprise me. What kind of ballpark would this be in for you? Yeah, I was gonna. I was initially dangling right around seven or a seven point five. So I'll side with IMDb on this one and say seven. Okay, Justin Macaroni, what are your feelings? Yes. Yeah, I I enjoyed it in the beginning. I was just like, whoa, what are we? What is going on? And then yeah, of course, Julia was kind of a bit of a downer a lot of it seemed really weird to me and out of place but now that i know it took place in england hey. it <laughs> makes sense <laughs> yeah the effects for the time period i mean you know i i, I enjoyed friday 13th's effects a lot so it was cool to see another slasher horror film do like cool different things like that I don't even know what it was. I'm assuming like the way that they did the building of Frank when he absorbs the blood and he's like coming out of the ground. I'm like, was it a wax that they melted, like layers of wax that melted and then just did a reverse time thing to make it look like it was coming together? Because that's the only way I can. What's that? Yeah, I think some of it for sure. Like I think it's a mixture of so many techniques. There. Yeah. I was like, man, there's so many different things going on. But it was really cool to see that. And that's where it like really brought me in. I was like, whoa, they're doing some really cool uh, effects on this and then the music of course got me going but a lot of the people in it just like every film is are just kind of dumb <laughs> but this one was done where it, it made sense like no one else would have the idea like oh she's going around bringing people to have them murdered for her husband's brother you know like no one had any idea like the husband was just like oh I don't know something's wrong she doesn't love me. Can you like maybe try to be friends with her? And the daughter the next day is like, ah, I guess I'll go see what's up. And that's how she finds out. So I was like, okay, that's kind of believable. But there's a lot of confusion with the actual rules and mm. who the hell Jesus was and all that <laughs> stuff. So, but yeah, I enjoyed it. It was cool. I was like, oh, I want to see more of the Cinnabites and Chomper and Sloth, you know. You, keep, you could keep saying that as much as you want, man. It's not going to stick. <laughs> Chomper. <laughs> so what kind of ballpark here would you give it in a 20-point scale out of 10? 20-point scale out of 10. Yeah, so 0.5 is allowed, but that's about it. Yeah, I'll give it a 7. Yeah? Yeah, 7. <laughs> yeah. I think we're all roughly on the same page. I mean, I'm... Like I say, I used to watch this film a lot and I always had very conflicting feelings about it. And now I still have very conflicting feelings about it. But I think it's because it's a conflicting film within itself. I mean, on the one hand, you have over 50% of the movie, which is, yeah, familial drama thriller with these great sub, like subvertive sexual, you know, purgatory hell kind of other dimension elements to it. And that's from the little, Katie, you told me about a book and to the little that I read of the book, that's where I see its origins really being. Right. When no, I, novella. Novella, yeah. Well, it says on the cover, a novel very proudly. It does say a novel <laughs> on it, but I don't know. I, I can't remember what the page necessity is to make a novella or a novel. But my problem with it is that I think 
That is the more interesting side. That is something that hasn't been done really before, isn't done very often even now. There's some interesting stuff you can explore there. I don't think the actors are good enough to explore that. I don't think Judy works for me. I don't think even really Larry works for me a lot or Frank. It's very 80s and of its time. I am ashamed to say that while I appreciate that is the more interesting aspect of this film, the bit that appeals to me is way more standard just with a twist on the standard slasher formula. What appeals to me is the great imagery of the feathers falling, the sheets with the blood underneath it, the entrance of the Cenobites, like the ring of the bell, the lines from Doug Bradley, the makeup effects, and Kirsty. Like that is what interests me more. And I'm ashamed because, yes, that is more just typical sort of slasher territory. But I still think there's enough differences and nuances there in terms of the characters of the Cenobites. It's really so, so different to anything else in terms of, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, Jason or Michael Myers that makes this stand out. And I'm always kind of frustrated because I genuinely love, 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 love almost any scene that Kirsty is in and particularly Kirsty with the Cenobites. The rest of it, again, I think it's more interesting, but it just doesn't work for me. It really doesn't. I find it, I found it ugly and frustrating before. Now I appreciate it more, but it just still isn't my, my thing. Uh, I think the makeup effects are fantastic. Like genuinely quite gobsmacked that for that budget under a million, they could do this work with Frank, multiple different designs for that. There's only one where he looks really, really pink, which looks kind of stupid in a wide shot. And yeah, the Cenobite shots are fantastic. Like they, I think they're very smart with their budget. And I think Clive Barker actually does a really good job for his first directing. He only made, I think, two other films, Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed that he directed, both at my recollection of both are terrible, <laughs> but this, this, I think he does a good job. There's lots of missed opportunities. Uh, I think the law, like you both say, is confused as hell because he's adapting his own source material very quickly and probably changing some things on the fly when budget stuff became a problem. So yeah, for me, it is a, a start of a franchise with a lot of promise. We're not talking about, for me, a classic like A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 or even Halloween 1. I say even. I think Halloween 1 is better. But I do think it's got more promise than Friday the 13th one. Friday the 13th one, I know you guys enjoyed that a lot in our retrospective, but it doesn't really set up anything to do with the rest of the franchise. Only part two does. This one, I feel you're setting in motion a lot of interesting cogs that you could do very cool things with in the future. So as a horror franchise, if I didn't know where this is going and the crazy road it's going to go on, I would say I'm excited about where this could be next. Um, so before we get out of here, that's all I want to ask you guys. is like, what do you want from Hellraiser 2? You didn't give it your score, Al. Oh, yeah. I would actually be in the same ballpark. I'd have to give it a 7.5, I think, just because the bits I love, I love so much. Like, genuinely, like, there are iconic things in here that mean so much to me and my history with horror. So, yeah, 7, 7.5, 7.5. Yeah. I want to know what you guys want from a second, a sequel to this movie. More Champer. <laughs> Champity Champ. Do you want it to be set in America this time? Set in England? Do you want Kirsty to come back? Do you want any of recurring characters? Uh, you know, I would actually prefer it to be in America. Of course you so would. I could see like the exteriors and the outside world. I the house was cool, but it was just like I want to see a change of yeah. you know, scenery. Maybe go to their world. I don't know. Maybe just that was great. where someone's faces. <laughs> Man, <laughs> world. Do you want to go I, to the Cenobites I'm open world? I'm to anything right now. You want to go to the What's Cenobites that? world, are you saying? Yeah, get a, get a bite okay. in the Cenobites. Okay, okay. Katie, do you know what you want from a sequel? <laughs> I think I would like Kirsty to come back just because 
I feel I don't really, I mean, I don't really want to see it go. I don't really want to see the cycle. You know, I kind of want it to like breed into new territory. And I think it would be an interesting perspective to kind of see her as she's like grown older a little bit. She thinks that she's done with this horrific past of hers. Like you just have this like, oh, I'm an orphan, blah, 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 sort of feel about her. And she's definitely damaged goods, but trying to rebuild a life for herself. And then it kind of comes back to haunt her. But I would I would like to see a little bit more of the origin, whether that's physically or no more about the Cenobites and how old this regime is and how many, you know, have gone before Frank. So Well, we're gonna see next week how happy you both are. Because I can tell you now that both of you at the things you said, fifty percent of what each of you said is gonna happen in the next one. I'm not gonna tell you which fifty awesome. percent. But at least half of what you both Lord want Chomper. is going to be happening. I will see how happy it makes you <laughs> by the time I just want to like hold a carrot up to the chatterer as he's going, and then just like watch him slowly <laughs> eat it. So <laughs> you slice things. That just like. If you watch these along with us and you've listened through to here, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. If you could head over to wearegeeks.com, wearegeeks.com, or go on iTunes or your podcast service and type of wearegeeks. But if you're on wearegeeks.com, then you can branch straight out to all of our podcasts. Like I said at the beginning, Friday the 13th, Number on Elm Street, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Danny Boyle, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Child's Play, and our regular, <laughs> and our regular <laughs> podcast that goes up almost every single week, simply called Geeks, where we talk about topical video games and movies news and reviews and all of that fun stuff uh, if you're on weirdgeeks.com you can also email us and if you don't want to do that i just want to do it from your own law provider type in mail m-a-i-l at weirdgeeks.com let us know what you want to cover let us know your opinions on these movies and how we're all idiots and you think we're wrong except me and you can also branch out to our social medias for weirdgeeks.com as well as our twitch channel and we have oh boy some cool things coming on our Twitch channel in 2018. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. <laughs> so you should go to that and subscribe in future, future professionals. You'll be wigging out. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <Yeah. laughs> what else? If you're on weirdgeeks.com, why not click on that little uh, black circular emblem that says, We are Tessellate. They are our publishers. Uh, they're a production company run out of London, LA, and Tokyo. We just made our first feature film called Starfish, and we're right at the end of post-production on that right now. We've got another little secret cool project we're going to be talking about soon, and we're about to make another film. We have an album that's coming out, music videos, loads of cool content. We do this stuff right now for free. I don't mean right now. That's happening right now in your ears. I mean, we're going to always do it for free, sadly, because we love doing this stuff. It takes us a lot of time. It takes us a lot of effort. And actually, it costs us quite a lot of money because we have good professional people who edit this for us. So we do appreciate your support because the only way you can is going on iTunes, going on your podcast provider, giving us a star rating, subscribing, letting us know that you're listening really helps. Leave a comment. And then eventually, if you want to, you can buy our films, buy our albums, stuff like that. And maybe one day you'll, you'll be on here. Yeah. If you yeah. want to be on here, send us an email. Let us know. And, you know. Probably won't happen. But you never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can follow me on all the social medias. I'm Mr. Al White on everything, including the Xbox, where you can play some Friday 13th, some PUBG. Uh, we're doing some Mon Hun at the moment. What else is going on? That's Games. Monster Hunter yeah. World for well, those we of could you do the, who are not nerds. <laughs> we could do the CFDs, CFDs is coming CFDs up. Beta. Oh, baby. You, what? I'm what not in the beta. beta I'm not on it, man. I'm not on it. I couldn't get in. I pre-ordered and everything. Oh. Didn't get my beta token because Microsoft fucked up. It's a news item right now. 
we really should have thought about it on a weekly show and we didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. I'm sorry, <laughs> man. We could be set, setting sales right now. Don't make me cry. Sorry. So, yeah. How about you guys? How could people get in contact? I-T-S-R-A-D-L-E-Y. Yeah. You can find me on everything. It's Radley. <laughs> that's me. Mine, if you want to tweet at me and tell me about all the books that are better than films, it's at Watson Dearest. <laughs> thank you guys for joining me and i I hope i'm glad that here's what i say the first chapter is such an important one when we set up for one of these podcast retrospectives i know with texas chainsaw massacre i think jesse was a little bit scared (laughs) what is happening i'm glad at least you're both not you know a seven a solid seven is a pretty good opening number for us to be continuing with so let's see how we feel 11 weeks from now (laughs) <laughs> I, I was in like a 7 and a 7.5 but you say I can only do 0.5 so I was going to say 7.25 nope. nope I'm allowing it that would be a 40 point scale and that's too much Justin we will be back next Friday with a little film called Hellbound Hellraiser 2 until then we're out geeks 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 don't look at me jump 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 it's me, Brother Frank. <laughs> Aren't you going to let me in?